0: Hello everyone. Welcome back to the Great Divide Podcast, episode eighty four. Welcome, Svein. Hello, Svein. Hey Tom. And we are back with whoever knows how many songs we're gonna get through in this one, but we've only got three left. But uh if, if the last few episodes are any indication, that don't mean
1: squat. <laughs> I hope we can do two.
0: <laughs> yeah, so uh, you know, let's just uh let's just jump right into it. Because if there's one thing I hate about podcasts, it's the podcasts that start out by just talking about all kinds of useless crap that no one cares about in the beginning. Like, uh, what did I do this week? What am I listening to today? What did I eat this morning? It's just annoying. So um, We've never done that, have we? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're innocent of all those charges. Well, I, I, will, I will say this, and this is my, my one tangent um making me a big hypocrite based on what i just said but i just had a long drive i drove like six and a half hours somewhere for work uh last week uh one way and then again back the other way and i decided to listen to some podcasts on the way as one would and um i found some clash related podcasts they don't do just the clash but they had episodes about the clash and uh, i thought i thought well great i'll listen to these this will be great and one one was like two hours long so i thought well that's good that'll knock out a good two hours out of the drive and i got through that i got through about 30 minutes of that show and i had to stop even with that drive i couldn't listen anymore i mean all these guys did was just talk about nonsense in the beginning and they kept getting thrown off track and they it was 30 minutes in and they hadn't even Discussed a single Clash song yet, and um, I, I they were talking <laughs> talking over each other. There were three of them, and they kept talking over each other, and it just it was unlistenable. So, uh, so yeah, it made me made me appreciate uh, what we try to do on this show. Does that sound too uh, pompous? I don't know. I hope not.
1: We have such an interesting lives that we need to to stick to the topic at hand. I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. So with that said, what I'm saying is I don't want to be like that. So we're just going to jump in to the next song on the agenda, which is another big one, probably. Who knows? We'll find out. Fine's got this one first. So that song is "Close Action."
1: That was almost a mini rant. Good for you. That was a little bit of a rant, wasn't it? <laughs> Setting the tone
0: with a rant. Nice. It was just so annoying. I mean, I just, man, I don't care. Just, I wanted to listen (laughs) to this. You talk about The Clash. I don't care about anything else. Close action, let's go.
1: Let's go. What the hell does the song mean? Well, finally, we have come to the song about the life and times of the great Scorpius, (laughs) the mythological beast of the highlands. (laughs) Scorpius.
0: Oh, what a great story.
1: Yes, and uh, we'll get to that, I'm sure. But first of all, just to sort of set myself up a bit, close action is a very special song on this album. But by the time you get to the middle of side two of the vinyl and the cassette tape, close action really is uh, perfect at that place it has on the album. It is perfectly located. In many ways, I regard this song as the secret weapon of the album. Primarily because this is a song of uh, undisputable quality. And I think over the years, close action has proven itself. It is uh, one of the best songs on the album, which would mean It's also one of their best songs, if this is one of their best albums. So I think Close Action could easily have been a single, but it was never touted as a single. It could easily have been a staple in their stage shows, but it really hasn't been that either. It's actually one of the lesser-played songs on the album. Uh, And that's saying something, because they do play The Crossing a lot in its entirety, which means Close Action is played uh, quite a bit. It's not a rare song. But it's, it's also one of the more skipped songs on The Crossing. And I remember when they played, for example, um, the Come Up Screaming thing, when they did the Come Up Screaming live album, they played eight songs from The Crossing on that one. And Close Action was one I really wanted them to play, and that was one of the two songs they skipped. The other song being uh, a Thousand Stars, for those who like to pay attention. Mm. So there is this narrative really coming from all of that, going around that this song is a bit of a filler, that it's a lesser song, on The Crossing, which I think is insanity. But I do see it in discussions all the time. And not too long ago, on the, through a big country group, Andy Inkster, one of our favorite bogans, did um, a poll. He did uh, the last three songs on the album poll to find out which album had the strongest end section. And some people said, well... I would have voted a crossing, except close action pulls it down a bit. Actual quote from that discussion, which I think, all oh, right, really, you know, <laughs>
0: there,
1: there there might be a song I think a little less of a, in, in that troika, but close action is not it for me. Uh, so yeah, this narrative exists that it is a little bit of a filler, but also the song clearly has its fans. There are many who are very fond of close action, uh, and I'm clearly one of them. So. I mentioned I think the song is a secret weapon. Why do I think that? I think mainly because of its undisputable quality, despite the narrative that it's a lesser track. I think um, every album in the history of recorded music would kill to have a lesser track, as strong as close action. But I think uh, the song's status isn't really a problem for The Crossing. I think all classic albums need these secret weapons to truly be classic. If you break down any album's, You have first of all the big guns the hits the songs that everybody knows the singles and secondly you have all the additional songs that uh, they may not have been singles but they have been staples in their live sets since the album came out and they keep playing them like uh, songs like lost patrol for example when it's one two three four count it's a staple they play it and everybody gets into it but thirdly you also have these songs that you can refer to as album tracks In the case of The Crossing, this is such an often played album that the album tracks are as well known as the main staples, really. And in fact, they are main staples of most of their shows. But then you have this tiny category of songs that are often left to the side or more often than others that are not so often played. But when they come out, they really shine with the same quality and uh, they feel as great as the others. And perhaps you appreciate hearing it more just because you don't hear it all the time. And that to me is close action. It's such a track of incredible quality of warmth with huge melodic hooks and it comes like i said at a key point on the album after some amazing songs but dramatic ones this is almost a safe haven it's an oasis of goodness before the album ends more frantically with fields of fire and power man so yeah i have a lot of fondness really for close action so let's get a bit more into it let's look at the demos first Closed Action is not featured amongst the earliest batch of songs we know of. The song first appears in uh, a John Brandt demo session. They did a couple of sessions with John Brandt at Phonogram Studios, the first one on the 9th of March, 1982. And as we know, this is really early after Tony and Mark joins. They come into the studio, they record a demo tape for Phonogram Records, and that tape contains Heart and Soul, Close Action, and Harvest Home. I am fairly certain that this version of Close Action is the same that is used on Rarities 4. It's a very interesting version, uh, especially as it still retains some of the keyboard stylings that Stuart uh, brought with him from the skids days, that they would leave behind ahead of the Lily White album sessions. But that's still here in this version of Close Action. <laughs> They also recorded Close Action as part of the batch of songs with uh, Chris Thomas in June 1982 from the scrapped album sessions. And we finally got to hear that one, uh, the Chris Thomas mix, included as a bonus track on the 30th anniversary 2 CD deluxe edition of The Crossing. Uh, It is on CD2. It is the version listed as previously unreleased. It doesn't say Chris Thomas there, but the previously unreleased is the Chris Thomas mix. Yeah. It's not too dissimilar, really, from the version on Rarities 4. They didn't change uh, a lot of arrangements, which might which might have been part of the problems with those sessions really. Things weren't looked that close and changed as needed. Later we also have some interesting radio recordings of Close Action. They performed it on both the Kid Jensen show in August 1982 and on the John Peel show in February 83. And these have uh, been released on the BBC box set and earlier again on the Radio One Session CD, which is the one with the yellow and dark brown stripes that we have talked about many times. It is the only song played on both of these. They play it both on the kid Jensen and the John Peel sessions. So we actually have some basis of comparison here. And if we look at uh, the Jensen version, that sounds close to the Chris Thomas version from June. And there's really only two months between them, so that wouldn't be strange. It's very noteworthy in a couple of things. I mean, one thing that always stood out to me like a sore thumb was the, the clash on the cymbal in the beginning during the guitar intro. <laughs> right. Which was uh, yeah, very, very noticeable. Uh, I, the first time I heard that, I actually think I did a double take. Like, what's that? <laughs>
2: I'm like,
1: wow, that's crazy. Never mind all the other things that uh, were was different about that version. That was the thing I remember. The John Peel version is uh, half a year later, after the first radio session. And that sounds a whole lot closer to the album version. Those uh, cymbal sounds are gone. And overall, it's, uh, it's a lot closer. And that was just a little over two months before they started recording the album. So again, that's not too strange. So the radio versions are really close to their respective different album recording sessions. So if you look at all these demos overall, the biggest change from all of these earlier versions is that it's uh, quicker, it's a lot faster, to the point where it's almost uh, played frantically in a tempo. The album version is much more relaxed, but it's uh, no less sharp. It's very sharply played without stressing it, uh, making it a very confident version. But all those demos, they really are playing it along. slowing it down was a vital change because that makes especially the chorus work much better in terms of providing comfort and we'll speak about that when we get more into the song but that chorus is really a comfort zone i will carry you home with the gods in my eyes which is a lovely sentiment and it's one that you shouldn't stress through you need to relax and tone it down sing it with comfort and sincerity rather than rushing through it so that that's uh, that's a good change. As interesting as it is to hear them going for it, and I like a band that can go for it and, and play through it. But this isn't the song to do it, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Good, uh, pr- good decision, probably by Lily White there.
1: Yeah, and they would stick with it. You know, some of the decisions that Lily White did, we know that the band would discard when they went back to a live setting. But yep. uh, this version stuck, and it's uh, it's, that's really good. So it's cool to hear them go for it. Young guns, go for it. I'll leave that one for you. (laughs) You can talk about that again. I'll be wrong again. Man. Okay, so we do have a lot of quotes also for this song. I'll start with Tony's comment from his track-by-track comment along from 2006, where he went through uh, all the songs on the album. So, about close action, he said this. At the time of making this album, I remember this being my most favorite track. I couldn't believe the sheer musicality of it. The guitars are glorious. The vocals, lyrics, and melody wrenched my heart out of my chest until the chorus, where I felt safe again. Sorry, gone a bit dizzy. What a track. So, yeah. What he alludes to there is really that the, the chorus is the safe haven even within the song, and the, the lyrics of the verse are more dramatic, and we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. We have some quotes from Stewart first, some different quotes. The first one being uh, a smash hits quote from 1983, where we just have the snap beer quote that we spoke about when we discussed Lost Patrol. This time he says, it's about families who get split up because of work, going to oil rigs which is an interesting comment. He also uh, introduced a song on stage in uh, Tokyo in May 1984, which, as we know, was right before they stopped the Crossing World Tour and went home all exhausted. And he said about this song,
3: The song is uh, about families being split up in order to make a living.
1: So um, that's um, interesting. These comments uh, certainly harmonize. The families being split up to go to work, split up in order to make a living. And then you can take the oil rigs or you can apply it to many other things as well. The title of the song is very interesting. If you look at uh, Tim Barr's liner notes from the 2012 remaster of the album, he writes there that the title of the song was appropriated from Alexander Kent's maritime thriller Signal Close Action, which Stuart was reading at the time. This is a book that I actually debated a bit with uh, Andy Inkster. He bought this book to read it to <laughs> see if there was anything in this book that uh, could uh, have lent itself to the lyrics. And he uh, he bought a digital copy. He got it not too long ago, just a week before we speak now. So I went back to him, fully expecting this to be sort of a quick boy's own type uh, book for teenagers. And he came back and said, Oh, it's got 750 pages. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a brick, people. Uh. It's from 1976. It's set in the Napoleon era, and it's a book about sea battles, really, where the hero is, uh, is you know, on one of these ships. and it's, uh, that, it, Believe me, that's really all you need to know. There isn't much to garner from this book in terms of the, uh, the song. Let's just leave it at that. But uh, one thing you can learn from the book is that uh, the signal of close action, or signal close action, which is the title of the book, is the flying of a flag to warn or communicate with other ships that the ship it is flying from is under heavy fire or involved in battle at close range. So it's very specific to naval sea battle, which is interesting because that's not something I uh, necessarily took from the song. Yeah, I didn't either. Even though there's a lot of nautical expressions in it. If you search for Close Action, you will also find that there's a lot of board games called Close Action, also about naval warfare, also set in the Napoleon era, (laughs) which could be accidental, or it could be inspired by that book, or who knows. I'm not going to take that all the way home, people. My, My take is not particularly based on the Napoleon times, but the references to Nautical Battle are nonetheless interesting, so there you have it for that part. Diving a little closer to the lyrics... Just like Lost Patrol, Close Action is a song title that isn't used anywhere in the lyrics of this song. And like I said before, this is something I, uh, I used to marvel at when I first looked at the album and was reading the liner notes and uh, noticing that, wow, this title is appearing from nowhere and uh, <laughs> it certainly isn't in the song. And especially when titles are lifted from a part of the lyric that seemed not to be an emphasized or highlighted part of them, which is true for some other songs. But uh, we know now, of course, where the title was uh, taken from. And it is a nautical thing related to battle. And as we can see from, uh, from these lyrics, Stuart used a lot of nautical terminology in the lyrics of this. The first verse in particular of close action uses a series of nautical terms. But the interesting thing is it is not used really in boat context. It describes an intercontinental journey by aircraft, not by boat. And uh, I uh, had a feeling at the back of my mind after Tom had done episode two, where you said, and um, believe me, I couldn't have said more at the time. I think you said something like you didn't quite understand what the song was about, but you felt what it was about. And I thought that was actually a beautiful way of phrasing it. But after that episode colin dawson wrote in (laughs) to the uh, podcast i've got
0: his email ready too
1: (laughs) (laughs) you can close it now because it will be exploited heavily but but he wrote in to explain the terminology of the first verse in the song and um that was handy now because i didn't have to do the research for it so thank you colin and as you can all see what this means is that nothing is thrown away that you send us it all goes into the bank and you never know when it will be pulled out So the first line, the line of the Scorpius, we have to tell that story, don't we? We have uh, it actually told by both Bruce and by Tony. (laughs) And I think we should bring those people back to tell that story. So why don't we do that?
4: But there's always, you always get stumped on something. You know, you always think, oh, he said that, but in actual fact, he didn't say that. I mean, <laughs> right. we, 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 I mean a classic example was uh, with a guy he's no longer with us a big, big guy that used to look after us called uh, Joe Seabrook he used to work with um, Keith and Ronnie for the Stones he used to look after them <clears throat> and he turned, we were sitting in the bus one night and Big Joe was <laughs> sitting there with a couple of drinks and playing cards and, whatever, and he goes he goes what's a Scorpius?" <laughs> and I went Stuart's oh, looking at me and I'm like what? He goes, what is this Scorpius? Is it some sort of mythical, mythical sort of minotaur or a creature? And Steve's going, what song is that? And he went, you know that song. You know, is it close action? You know. A score of years, blah, blah, blah. He thought it was called a scoffious. A scoffious because of Stuart's accent. A scorfius, do It became part of her dictionary. Ah, oh, that's he, so funny. Here comes a scoffious. You know? <laughs> I mean, the reason Big Joe said that, Scorpius is because he'd, he'd asked Stuart I about, mean, what's this Porro Man thing, you know? And then Stuart came to explain to Joe, it was like what, an H.G. Wells short story, Pollock and the Porro Man, about some sort of African witch doctor thing. And they just assumed that, you know, Poro Man... Well, Scorpius, it must, be the, it must be from the same book.
5: It was, it, the story, it came from the guy who used to be Stuart's minder when he was a pop star. Okay. A guy called Joe Seabrook, who oh, used, to, right. used to be Keith Richards' minder. Oh, wow. When the Stones weren't working, he came to work with us because he he, he liked us and he loved Stuart.
6: And uh, he kept saying, who is Stuart? Who's Fucking
5: Scorpius.
0: <laughs>
5: <laughs> we talked about that on our
0: sh- oh, we talked about that on our show, oh, and and you'll get a kick out of this. One of the uh, one fan, Oliver Hunter, he actually yeah. pre- created a likeness of what the Scorpius might look like, and he had Bruce <laughs> sign it. <laughs>
6: uh,
1: priceless. So let's start on the actual song. The first verse is where we have the lyrics describing this intercontinental journey by aircraft. And uh thanks to Colin Dawson we can now go line by line through this with reasonably uh, good explanations of all the terms and expressions. Did you know about them before we received that email? No,
0: um uh, some of them I did like stokers I could figure out but monkeys I I never had any clue what that was about and uh and I've heard various interpretations since Colin's email but um, Collins uh, seems as good as, as any it certainly makes sense
1: yeah I mean the monkeys were as uh, as weird as the scouts in the stairwell for a long time really
0: <laughs> yeah they really was as a kid I had to take it at face value literal monkeys
1: <laughs> they are flying with monkeys
0: it's another Chester's Farm you know, type of song
1: yes some radioactive exploding monkeys that are dropping on people Yeah, yeah. something like that but no it's not as dramatic as that If we start with the first line, a score of years this line has run. That really explains how long this airline has run. A score is an old British expression for 20. So basically what this says is this line has run for 20 years. And line was a term used to describe a shipping company, like the White Star line that owned the Titanic. But in this case, it's an airline. Then you have above the crests that drown the sun. The crests could be waves, but the crests that drown the sun are clouds. So the airliner is flying above the clouds. And um, as Colin says, that's an interesting use of the word drown, which continues the nautical theme. The next line, a mile high, the turbines turned. An intercontinental airliner cruises at six or seven miles high. So when it's a mile high, the engines will be working hard to get the plane up to cruising altitude. And turbines are used in ships, but in this case, they are jet engines. The next one The stokers sweat, the monkeys burned. In nautical terms, a stoker is the person or machine that feeds fuel into the boiler. But in this case, it would be the pumps feeding fuel into the jet engines. And uh, our mythical monkeys, a monkey is a slang British expression for 500 British pounds sterling. So the fuel pumps and the engines are working hard and burning lots of fuel, which means they're burning lots of money. So this really talks about the uh, intensity of how the how the the fuel is pumped in and the speed at which is pumped in. <laughs> so it's really a, a very technical first verse. Uh, the first verse is all about the actual craft that carries people to their destination, and each verse is about something different. And in turn, as we take as we go into the chorus, that means the chorus have somewhat different meanings, too, even though they have the exact same words. I will carry you home with the gods in my eyes. In this context, after the first verse, gods are in the heavens or in the sky. So the aircraft is flying very high in the sky when it's uh, when it's that high. And uh, also the chorus is sung in the first person. Later, I will carry you home. And then you can wonder who is the I? Is it the ship's captain? Is it the returning worker? The sea? The ship itself? Or the airplane? Many things it can be. I think in this first uh, verse it is probably the craft itself. The first verse is all about the craft and the technicalities of how it runs and how it transports and how it carries you safely. So it's natural to have a reflection on that for this. As the chorus goes on, I will carry you home while the westerlies sigh. The westerlies are the prevailing winds, which were important to sailing ships, but equally important to high-flying airliners. Depending on which way you are traveling, there could be a headwind or a tailwind or a crosswind. In this first chorus it's about the effect the wind has on the flight home, but in subsequent choruses the lyric had different meanings. So that's really the first part of the song. It's about really the transportation, about the machine, and about uh, the act of being transported by it. It gets a little bit more personal in the remaining bits of the song. So let's look at the second verse. This describes the feeling of separation really well, I think. Uh, It's a huge part of being separated. If you go back to Stuart's uh, explanations, being separated by work, needed to go somewhere else to earn a living, being apart from your family. The continents will fly apart. The oceans scream and never part. These are very emotional lines and very dramatic lines. They convey a feeling that people in certain circumstances may have that even the land and the sea themselves are doing what they can to keep people apart. You're apart from your loved ones, and it feels like even the continents are parting to keep you apart. The, the oceans, the screaming and storming, and and that reference to parting oceans, which may even be biblical. You pray to the lords above for the oceans to part, like they did for Moses, so you can get through them and reunite with your loved ones. But it does not happen. Instead, they scream back at you. And um, the circumstances seem rather extreme in the opposite. The divine powers are making things worse rather than helping, or the elements are making things worse. So um, the separating of continents, uproaring of the sea and bad weather, these are not good traveling conditions. So yeah, you're kept apart and they're all working against you. You're, You're putting your emotions into the natural forces here and not for the better. And it goes straight into the next line. Divided souls can never rest what i can say is this is this is pretty damn true and anyone who has traveled a lot who travels for a living especially and anyone who needs to spend time away from home they will think of those who are back home and by the same token those who are back home will think of those who are gone and count down the days until they return so divided souls can never rest it's true <laughs> and enough said really so we continue must join the nations break the test Although Stuart is singing about divided families, this last line of the verse gives the lyrics a hint of broader implications, like this is a duty. Join the nations, do your bit, contribute to the common good. Whether this is a soldier being sent to war, which is another form of families being split to go to work, war is work. It can be a worker going to work on an oil rig, like Stuart mentioned that example especially. Especially. And we can ponder if that was just one example or if it was the whole thing. I would probably veer towards that being one example. But whatever reason there is for people to leave their families, they need to leave to do a job, primarily to provide for their family, but in the grander scheme of things, also to do what's needed to keep the larger wheels turning, to do their bit, join the nations, break the test. So um, and then you come into the chorus again, which... uh, it's again about being carried through the situation and eventually home. The third verse is about when things are moving closer to getting ready to start the journey back home again and reunification. Many meanings you can put into this. What I think of is really it's about the anticipation of a reunion, where we are waiting for uh, the time to be right to go. Especially if there's a countdown, at that hour we will fly you home from the oil rig. We will uh, your your plane will land on on your home soil where the family is waiting, or whatever situation you have. So the sirens wailing, which usually is a sign of alarm. But also, I know it can be a takeoff in certain situations, especially the oil rig to fly you home. And uh, you wait for the tide that brings the sail. Again, transported home. Cling to the wall and close to shore, being mad with anticipation. You're getting close, you're climbing walls, you're getting closer, and someone is waiting and you can't wait. Uh, And the lovers wait, who walk no more. That is the line that gets me in this whole song almost. Because that line illustrates that sometimes the wait takes a very long time. The line says the lovers wait that walk no more. Whether that is meant to illustrate old age, they they are literally too old to walk, that an accident happened, that this assignment or mission or whatever lasted so long that people no longer have full use of their legs, or even the wait lasted the rest of someone's life in some cases. Maybe they went through hardships of their own had accidents or were victims of some attack. It's all possible. It's all possible. And that's kind of a heartbreaking notion to end the song with. That someone could even be gone. Lovers wait that walk no more. They could be gone. No longer here. But the fact that this verse is followed by that chorus, that sweet, caring, making everything all right chorus. I choose to see this as a song where the lovers the families, the people, they were all reunited in the end. But clearly, as this verse alludes to, that would not always be the case. Some people did wait in vain. And sometimes the people at home were no longer there. And other times, uh, someone they waited for also never came home. So if you take a step back from that specific element and look at the lyrics as a whole, they're, they're very clever. There's some fabulous imagery here. A lot of thought, a lot of heartbreak a lot of separation which isn't easy but uh, there is so much scope for the reader to make their own interpretations and maybe make it even fit their own situation i'm sure that Stuart would have liked them to sympathize really with a lot of what's going on but then come to the chorus lines the utterly romantic sentiment or at least one filled with love and um, i include families as well as lovers it's all kinds of love just that desperate need For a family member to come back home and to come home and to be carried home and make things all right those words in the chorus are so heartwarmingly comforting in their promise to carry someone all the way home and that uh, fits also with how the song is performed musically i see really the music as part of how you should take the lyrics in both the verses and the chorus and this music is not about drama There's no dramatic Ebo lurking in the background with an ominous sound of doom. and There's no creepy atmosphere. This is a melodic comfort zone of sweetness. And the song provides that comfort. So in that regard, the lyrics and the music are well aligned. And I think Steve Lillowite deserves a lot of credit for that because we remember the main difference between the album version and the demos that we listened to. The most important change was to slow it down, speeding the song down, the demos were simply too frantic. They were playing it too fast. There was too much uneasy urgency, really, compared to what some of the lyrics and how they could be read. So um, that was clearly needed, especially in terms of that chorus. I think they needed to find the song's comfort zone, where it would be able to ooze some of that comfort itself. And this is a key element, actually, to why I hold this song in such high regard. The demo versions were racing along to such a degree that I never got that feeling of comfort. Uh, Actually, that's losing a lot of the song's potential. So, yeah, kudos for recognizing that and really adjusting the song accordingly and tapping into that oasis of sweetness in a huge, huge way. So, having said that, when listening to all the demos in preparation for this and then going back into the album version, it's so noticeable, so extremely noticeable, just how much slower that album version is compared to the demos. So, if you come out of a demo, and then go into the album version listening it's it's almost like whoa this really feels super slow in comparison yeah
0: i had the same reaction when i was listening yeah
1: yeah yeah it's it's so noticeable they really slowed it down and that's um that's when i thought all right this change is actually huge but if you don't listen to those demos first that's really not a problem and it's really just the transition that is noticeable it's not that it is a problem at all but. Uh, Right. Once they get into the vocals, especially, then you notice it immediately. The, si- the singing is much more emotional, it's at a much more comfortable pace, and all of that is lacking in the demos. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I started talking really about the music. So, let's go into that. And I mentioned those um, crash cymbals earlier in the intro, in the BBC session versions. I never really noticed those before I heard that. But when you listen to the album version, they are there too. But the, moving that sound into the choruses from the intro was a, a good move. It fits better there. And there's enough other things going on in the song that it doesn't really make you do that double take that I did initially
0: and that's a china symbol by the way if anyone's looking for specifics I love the china mark uh, used that a lot I always love that sound
1: is that the splashiest of the splash that mark uses
0: yeah, it's like a, I mean, I'm not a drummer, but so some drummers might laugh at me, but it's sort of like a glorified splash cymbal. It gives like a big crash, but it doesn't resonate like a regular cymbal would. You know, if you crash a regular cymbal, that sound will, will reverberate for a while, like, whereas the China cymbal, just like, just like that, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's noticeable. But yeah. I think the, moving that sound into the choruses from the intro was a, a good move. Yep. And most songs on The Crossing have instrumental breaks with melodic guitar parts, and this song is really no exception. They usually have the place of the solo, and I I have to say I love those guitar parts that come in after the first chorus, really, that stretches into the second verse. Really lovely uh, lines, and they become part of that oasis of goodness that really extends from the chorus and into that whole next section because of that. It's a good continuity. And of course, with a fantastic bassline, playing that melodic run, boom boom, boom boom, boom boom, boom, boom boom, is really <laughs> wonderful mm. That That is a magnificent moment on not just this song, but the album. That yeah. is really a melodic, pure gold pure gold melodic pure gold that section of the song there's another lovely guitar break after the second verse in chorus and that is a more harmonizing layer of guitar And uh, yeah, We we mentioned the speed as a huge change from the demos, but there's another huge change, which was the transition from the second instrumental break back into the third verse. On the album version, they went almost straight back from that break into the verse, and it flows really well. Uh, Whereas on the demo, they have an almost whole other intro to the verse. Like, the whole intro to the song is played over again, and it's a slower build-up into the final verse. So they got rid of that, and that did a lot to uh, the flow of the song, I think. Mm. The outro deserves a special mention. I think I hinted to this when we discussed Lost Patrol and how that song felt like it had a rushed ending and was really lacking an outro. But on close action, they really did it right. Boys and girls, this is how you close a song. This is how you do it. This is not a repeat of chorus lines or anything into a fade-out. And this is not a song that adds an extra boom and ends. For this song, the band composed an outro section that is unique. It stands on its own. It uses the main lines of the chorus, but it has a unique build and a slight change in melody, a slight build even, and then they close it. And that ending was made especially for the purpose of ending this song well. Such a well placed effort. And I I love how this song ends, and especially as it adds something to the narrative as well that they have uh, ended the song with the lovers who walk no more and I'll carry you home and they add that whole section of loveliness never mind the lovers that walk no more never mind the roaring ocean and the changing continents at this point we get the promise one last time I will carry you home Yeah, it it is lovely, it is heartfelt beautiful melody it comforts the listener and it just lands the song so well No other song has an ending quite like this because like I said, an especially written and designed and arranged ending section. That is that is how you do it. So um, I am simply moved by it emotionally, and the part of my brain that runs on cold-hearted rationalism is also very pleased with the full circle and the fact that they designed it and played it this way. It's just perfect. Well done. Bravo. Secret Weapon. This is a wonderful song. So... If all well that ends well, then certainly all swell in this case.
2: Mm.
1: yeah, I will um I'll try to wrap up so we don't spend as long on on these songs as we did the last couple, but I will share a very early memory of this song, and that's when I got the tape of the crossing back in the days. It didn't include the lyrics, so I didn't spend a whole lot of time trying to decipher everything, and in any case, my English skills were what you could call emerging mm. in in those days, so it probably wouldn't have mattered. But I grabbed the gist of what was being sung. And the rest was how it sounded and how the vocals would hit me along with the music. And then you have the chorus. So I would never have known all these nautical terms or all these other things. But the chorus was easy to understand. So you would have, I will carry you home with the gods in my eyes. That is very, very clear. And even back then, I thought, this is such a lovely and touching sentiment. And it's not soppy at all. It's really heartfelt. And I was... Convinced that uh, that close action was a love song and that the chorus of that love song had one of the most beautiful sentiments ever and even after I found out all the other things going on in the song that didn't change how I felt about that song it didn't really change how I felt about the chorus it's still about being carried home to loved ones perhaps not literally there and then or in someone's arms but by airplane or boat in perhaps more dramatic circumstances but it still taps into the same thing and that sentiment will forever remain touching to me. And those words will always remain some utterly lovely ones. So, uh, yeah, I can't help, but, uh, really still feel the way I do about this song. It's a powerful song. It's a melodic tour de force. It's a, it's, you can take a deep breath and relax and be comforted by this song at this point in the album before we all get energetic and dramatic again. And, uh, yeah, that that's all the hallmarks of a great song to me. So yeah, this this is a huge one for me personally.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. And it's a it's a huge one for me as well. Uh so we're gonna very much agree on a lot when it comes to this song. Um so that said, I mean, uh you covered a lot of that stuff well. I, I do have some things that I think can add to that, uh not just repeat what you said. So I'm gonna try to avoid repeating things and add some some of my own perspectives to this. Um, and I'll start with the lyrics as well. Just, just to start with my own initial feeling about the song uh, when I first heard it, and for many years afterwards. I mean, for me, and, and Colin, it's, I'm glad that you mentioned Colin. I was, As I said, I was going to mention him as well. So Colin wrote that back in 2012. So Colin, if you're still listening, thank you for that. And yes, we still keep everything. We still <laughs> look back at things like this, and it was, a, it was a great email. But the one thing that it really... Um, That really hit me was he he even told me in a follow-up email, he says, Stuart used a lot of Fife Scottish nautical terms in his lyrics, many of which a lot of Brits might not understand. So I can imagine the difficulty that Americans would have trying to decipher some of his lyrics. So uh, when I first heard this song and I saw the title Close Action, I had no clue it had anything to do with uh, naval battles or, or nautical terms, really. I mean, I recognized some nautical terms in the lyrics, but what, what I thought about the song for many years was that it was a military type of song. And of course, you know, naval battles is militaristic, but close action. I did understand the term action as meaning combat. So, you know, that was a familiar term. Action is combat. Have you seen any action? You would all often hear soldiers ask each other. So I understood that as being combat and close action being something that was nearby. So when I first heard the song, I used to think of it as a soldier... Carrying another soldier, possibly a wounded soldier, carrying him home, where his home was a metaphor for you know maybe back to safety or to to uh, a hospital or something like that, so for many years that's how I looked at this song. but one thing that's really hit me about this song um you know recently and 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 really borne home in the research that was done for this the, these episodes, and it's made me look at the song in a completely new way. This song to me is about Stewart's father, not the entire song, not 100% of the song, because you can never look at these songs and say, well, it's completely about that. I mean, Stewart used many different images throughout his songs, but there were oftentimes many overriding themes and overriding um, muses, I guess you could say, for a song. And I think this one was Stewart's father and the relationship that he had with him growing up and and not only that, but also the, what was happening now with Stuart and his kids. Because remember, at the time of these songs and the time of The Crossing, Callum had just been born. And Stuart has said, and we'll get into this in the next song, that, that being a parent really changed his perspective on so many things. And um, I really believe that this song is a precursor to Tall Ships Go. I think this song is right... It just completely intertwined with Tall Ships Go. And I'm excited about feeling that because it, it really makes me think of both songs in a different way. And let's remember that Stuart would often introduce this song about families being split up because they had to make a living. Families being split up so that someone could make a living. Um, and also Long Journeys, he would say that as well. So that's going to get back more to the Stuart personal aspect of the song. But Stuart lived this. His father was gone for many, many years and and long stretches at a time because he had to move out of Scotland to find work. So, Stewart lived this throughout his life. In fact, I want to read some quotes um, from some early articles on the band that really give a lot of uh, context to this. So, you know, I don't think Stuart was just writing this out of things that he witnessed with other people. Stuart was writing this based on what he experienced as a boy with his dad never being home and the pain of that when you get to a, a song like Tall Ships Go And you read that heartbreaking And hear that heartbreaking line Why must it always be dreams When your voice calls to me You know, just a heartbreaking line Of a, of a son who wants his father in his life That's what this song is about too Close action So here's an article from, from uh, Rolling Stone Back in 1983 It says, Stuart Adamson looks up From his plate of crispy shredded beef There's a glimmer in his narrow Almost lidless eyes He says he has some good news to report his father is due to return home to Scotland after having spent the past five years in Shanghai. Shanghai? We were on the Dole together, Stuart starts to explain. I saw this advert for a job overseas, gave it to him, and off he went. He was a shipbuilding engineer over there. He built something like 150 ships. Adamson's father's always had a bit of the old wanderlust about him. In fact, despite his parents' Scottish background, Stuart was actually born in Manchester, where his dad was working at the time. His family moved back to Scotland when Stuart was about six months old, but thanks to a 20-year stint in the Merchant Marines, notice that, 20-year stint in the Merchant Marines, Stuart's father wasn't around the house too much. I used to get up and put the fire on in the morning and get my sister ready for school because my mom was always working at her job in an electronics factory, Stuart says, and when she came home at night, i'd have the dinner made now where does that 20 years come into play well the whole the, the the first line of the song a score of years 20 is that a coincidence that's a time that his dad spent in the merchant marines uh, the time where he was away from the family most of the time i find that fascinating so and then we get to a certain chemistry um stewart talks about his his uh childhood with his dad and he says my father started off as an engineer in deep sea trawlers We were living in Crossgates then in a one-bedroom miner's house in a row. He was away from home a lot. The earliest recollections I have of him is coming back from sea, and he used to bring pennants from all the places he'd been, and I had a whole wall of them in my room. It was mainly my mom and her mother that I had the most contact with at that time because my dad was away working so much. There really wasn't the scope to earn a decent amount of money locally, so I think that's why he went to sea. So, there you have it. You know, Stewart lived this life that he's singing about in Close Action. He saw what it did to his own family. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that his family was destroyed over it and, and broken up over it, but it clearly had a huge effect on him. I mean, he would write two songs about about it on the first two albums, and, and in many respects, they're heartbreaking songs, even though I think Close Action, as Fine alluded to, is a much more comforting song in many ways. And it's not necessarily a a sad, negative song, but there are still so many bittersweet moments in it. And and then Tall Ships Go, I've always found to be just a heartbreaking song about this love for his father and this desire, this intense desire to have a closer relationship with him. And even in that quote where he talks about putting the penance up in his room that his father would bring home, I mean, you really get the feeling that he really, really missed having his father there with him. So... The, the heart of the song is based on Stuart's own experiences as a child. I think it's also a lot about Stuart's own issues with this as he had become a father. I mean just think about this. He'd now become a father. He'd had this life where his own father was was rarely at home in his formative years. And he had to grow up fast. He had to do a lot of things that, you know, normally a kid might not have to do as far as, you know, from a responsibility standpoint. And now his son is born, and he doesn't want to be that same father who's never there in his life, and yet he finds himself in the same situation where he has to work abroad to make a living, just like his dad did. So you can imagine the conflict that he must have been feeling at that time. I mean, here he is, he's living a dream, a personal dream, but the expense of that dream is that it's turning him into the same kind of absentee father that he did not want to be. So I think we get a lot of that in this song, kind of going back and forth between Stuart's own feelings from childhood about how he felt with his dad being gone, mixed with his, his own conflicts about how he's feeling now. And I think that first verse, you know, when when he so poetically describes the airplane flight, and he drapes it in these nautical themes, I think we've got a mix of the two. And And it could be, you know, it could be A flight that he is returning, literally returning home to his family. And he's thinking about these things. And maybe he's thinking about the conflict between what he's doing now and what his father did when he was a child. And he's sort of mixing them together. And I think that is just so, so amazing and so poetic and so beautiful. I mean, you know, there's so many incredible moments of poetry on this album. And I think, I think this song really. Is right up at the top when it comes to that. So, I really think that is the, is the crux of the entire song. It is is this conflict of Stewart's feelings as a child and what it did to him to have his dad be gone for so long, and then that conflict between the fact that history is sort of repeating itself a little bit with him um, now based on what he's doing. So, I don't, I don't want to go back into the first verse because Swine so already read Collins. Uh, interpretation of that and added to his own and i think we've we've pretty much established you know that's that's a very poetic way to describe a plane ride let's just go into the second verse Okay, um, I think Svein covered that really well. In that, this really talks a lot about the sense of, I think, the sense of distance that you have from someone when they're gone for long stretches. I think uh, children of of soldiers and people in the military feel this way as well. It, it feels like the continents are just are just gone. You know, they they fly apart. They're so far away. I mean, the person's already far away in in that they're in another part of the world but it seems like they're just an eternity away, a universe away almost. So I love the way he, he mentions that in the continents will fly apart. It's just like there's a sense of distance and isolation from for the person who's singing the song based on the person that he loves, who he wants to be home. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the biblical reference because I was going to do that too. I mean, I think that's so beautiful. The oceans scream and never part. And, you know, and, and the interesting thing about the biblical reference when Moses parted the Red Sea is that he did that he parted the red sea so that the israelites could go home so that they could find a path home and here we say the ocean's scream but they don't part you know there there's no way home and again back to that sense of of longing for the for the loved one to be with him to be home now the divided souls can never rest must join the nations break the test that's that's kind of a tough line i think i think the join the nations here is i used to think about it also as being people join with the nations, like they become part of the nations and sort of this big collective. But I think I think really what that refers to more is kind of a play on what we already saw with the continents flying apart. Now he's saying let's join the nations. Bring everything closer. Break the test is more is kind of a way of saying break the cycle, I think. Break the cycle, join the nations together, find situations where people don't have to Travel across the world in order to provide a living for their for their kids. I see that happening a lot where I live. There's there's a high population of uh, Mexican uh, immigrants here. And in fact, I a quick tangent. I go to quite often at at lunch uh, when I'm on my lunch break at work. There's a Subway restaurant nearby and I go to Subway. And I get a sandwich there, and I go so often that the people there know me, and they know exactly what I'm going to order when I come in, and I've kind of struck up a relationship with uh, a couple of them, and and they're they're immigrants, they're from Mexico, and um, one of the women that I was started to speak to, you know, she told me that a couple of her kids are still in Mexico, and she's here, and she's earning money, um, along with her husband. And they have one other kid who's living with them. And then the others are still in Mexico. And they're trying to earn money so that they can come over and they can bring them together. So, you know, this is not an isolated thing, obviously, that happened in Scotland. This happens all over the place. And you can imagine what that must feel like, you know, for a family to... The only way that they can really provide and and create a better life for themselves is for the family to be separated. And while that might provide a living... And it might provide them the monetary things that they need to improve their station in life. The damage that that, that, that does on other levels really can't be overstated necessarily. So, anyway, I get the feeling that that, that, that verse relates to that. You know, that much join the nations, his idea of, you know, we've got to somehow figure out a way where this does not have to happen. You know, you could say, well, maybe that's a naive thing to say because there are situations where there's just no other choice for people. But I think there is some naivety in this song, but it's, but it's purposeful. What I mean by that is I think at times we're hearing this song and hearing the lyrics from Stewart's childhood perspective. And sometimes that's how I take the chorus, especially when it comes in the second time, you know, I will carry you home with the gods in my eyes. I will carry you home while the westerly sigh. I mean, these to me are the most beautiful lyrics on the entire album and among the most beautiful lyrics that I think Stuart ever wrote, they just move me so deeply. And and I think that you can look at this chorus in a way, especially in the second verse, when, when you start to get more of that childhood perspective of Stuart's uh, relating to his father being gone. You know, sometimes kids will say things that they couldn't possibly do. For example... You know, I've talked with my own kids when they were really little about things. And I remember, I think, once talking about like like the scenario of someone coming up against a bad guy, if a bad guy was going to try to rob me or something. And the kid would say, well, if anyone ever tried to do that to you, I would would fight them and I would destroy them and I would save you and I would beat them up. I kind of get that feeling with this chorus in a way, like the child... He's saying, I will come get you, dad. You know, I'm going to come get you and I'm going to bring you home. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to come get you and, and bring you back home to me because I need you here. I want you here so badly, even though it can't happen. And even though the kid can't do that, I kind of get the feeling that it's, you know, almost, um, the kid imagining this, uh, just sort of envisioning this in his head.
1: You're making it sad now. Stop.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. I'm sorry. Um you know but that's that's the way these songs seem to be don't they i mean they
1: not this one not this one well you know you you can you can have all the others well you know the good thing though is that it, it does it's
0: not a completely bleak situation because his dad did come home but um it's just the reality of what he went through and i think he's he's just trying to explain that in the most optimistic way that he can and i don't think it ends on a on a bad note really it's just it's just a tough situation that he that he dealt with and then we go we go to the final verse and I think there are some things I can add to this. And I think this this could be really interesting too. But uh, I've learned a lot of this from, you know, reading some of these nautical terms. And I, I also went back when you mentioned that you were going to read that signal close action book. Did you read the whole thing, by the way? Andy read it. Okay, I didn't read it either. But I but I did do uh, I did open a PDF of it and did like a word search for the word action and close action <laughs> just to see. And I wanted to see what kind of context it was used. But. Uh, you know, I, I did learn some other things too, and that I think apply to this verse. For endless hours, the sirens wail. Await the tide that brings the sail. Cling to the walls and close the shore. The lovers wait, who walk no more. First of all, I think you could take sirens here to be a couple of different meanings. First of all, you could take it as as the the obvious meaning, the literal meaning, sirens, and that's a perfectly good explanation because ships did have sirens on them. Um, it, it not maybe not ships in the in the napoleonic war period but certainly in the in the later periods in the world war ii periods uh, ships had sirens and they made different sounds to uh express different things and there were actually sirens that that would ring to uh to let people know that they were the ship was about to be joining in combat and in fact my endless research actually led me to some mp3 files of actual Ship sirens. Let's play one of them now, shall we? Okay, so there's there's an example of a siren wailing, and um, for endless hours the sirens wail, await the tide that brings the sail. So you get the sense that you know the ship is sounding an alarm, sounding this siren. There's going to be action. There's going to be fighting. But what if you look at that word, sirens? as the mythological siren the the creatures the the beautiful women sirens who were like uh mutant mermaids almost who would who would be on a shore and they would call to ships and the ships would come to that shore and when they came there when they came close to shore they would they would wreck on the shore and the sirens would claim them and if you look at it from that perspective it's really interesting because you you get the feeling like uh the sirens could be luring people to come to this other shore for the promise of a better life, for the promise of making a living. But when they get there, they might find those things, but they also, by doing this, sort of are wrecking apart, wrecking their family in some respect, damaging their family. Um, so I think that's an interesting way to look at it, too. Whether or not Stuart was thinking about it that way, I don't know. But um, when we get to cling to the walls and close the shore... This, this really is certainly metaphorical, but it's also based in nautical terms. Cling to the walls and close the shore are nautical terms that would refer to how a ship is sailing as they come close to a shore. Close the shore. I used to think of it as shutting the shore down so that there could be no access to it. That's how I took it, um, not having any really knowledge about nautical terms. And I know one of our listeners, John Wilbur, is very well versed in these, so John Wilbur, you can add to this in the in the comments on our Facebook page. If I'm getting anything wrong here, because I'm very much a layman, but when when boats when someone says close the shore, that's like a command to the captain to get close to the shore, sail close by it, um, without getting dangerously close where they run aground, and cling to the walls means clinging to the sea walls, the sea walls of a shore seawalls are things or structures that, that are built around a shore and they, they sort of traverse the uh, the way a shore is formed and the form of a shore and they go around it. The reason is to sort of protect the shore from something like, uh, you know, natural disasters like a giant giant waves or, or big storms and they protect the shoreline. So those walls, those seawalls that go around the shore are things that, Um, A ship's captain would look at and and there were seawalls in existence, you know, during these early times as well. And now they become like big concrete structures that go around shores. But basically, so this idea of clinging to the walls was a was a message to the captain of the ship. Or the guy who's steering the ship to cling to the walls to stay close to the walls to follow the path of the walls as they close the shore as they get closer to the shore, so they could look at these sea walls as being almost um a navigational type thing that they could rely on to show them how the shore is shaped and they could and clinging to them means sticking close so that whole that whole final verse I think is is him saying, you know, stay close to the shore, stay close to home. It's sort of like a poetic way of him, you know, again, stressing, stay close to home, stay here. And the lovers wait who walk no more. You could, you can certainly take that, and it's fine mentioned it is as being people who just have been waiting for each other to return. And one of them died before that could happen, before they could be reunited. Because, you know, if people are gone for 20 years at a time, as Stuart's dad was, now he would occasionally come home and then he would go off again, almost like a, a someone who was in the, in the service, but that's a long stretch of being in the service. I mean, you know, just think about that, 20 years, <laughs> your entire childhood. So, you know, anything could have happened to him. So I think that sort of speaks to that, and, and it's kind of a warning. It's a warning, like if you don't consider these things you could end up like these lovers waiting who walk no more. You know, They wait forever for the reunion to happen, and it doesn't happen. So, yeah, there is a lot of bleakness in this song, uh, and a lot of bittersweet sadness to the song. But um, in Stewart's case, I think it's it, it worked out it, well in the end, but you still can't take away from what he lost. So, I think that this song, lyrically, really is totally centered in that Portion of Stuart's childhood, and it's almost a warning in, in in a way to other people who who could find themselves in this situation. Sort of like saying, you know, I understand the need to have to go do this, but just consider also what it's doing to the family when you have to do this. And if it has to be done, you know, at least and then it goes into a broader sense. What can we do to, to prevent this from having to be done? So so many layers to the song and so beautiful in so many respects i mean there's just you know as a as a parent myself i can really just relate to that that bond and and you know how much you need them there and just kind of off off air here something that happened um you know while we were recording this svine had to take a quick break because his son came home from school and he wanted to make sure that he Set him up with with lunch and set him up to to have something to to do while we're recording this. And you know, he wanted to take care of him. So just those little things are so important to that bond between a child and a father. And when you when these things aren't available, I think Stuart is singing about that. You know how tough that is. So yeah, so close action sort of takes on a whole nother feel. That the whole idea of close action. What does that mean? What does that title mean? And, and Svein talked about that being close action between ships you know ships that are fighting at very close range and in that book you know it talks a lot about that or cannons or you know you could see the cannon aiming right at the ship from just a couple yards away and how these cannonballs when they're fired into the ship just rip people apart and that's close action and so it's kind of like a metaphor for fighting close to home i mean just sort of the fighting within the close-knit family group i think and it's not like fighting against each other but it's it's this fight that's happening to keep the family unit together and I, it's just a, a beautiful beautiful poetic device that he used to to represent all these things it's just incredible and you know really the first pretty much the first example of Stuart using all these nautical terms one of them anyway and he'll do that throughout his career you know all the way through the Raphael's learning to row you know never stops so, this is something that he never really completely came to terms with, clearly. And um, it's fascinating when you look at the breadth of it throughout his whole career. And here is where it really began, in a lot of ways, uh, from a songwriting perspective. So, you know, that's how I look at the lyrics. I mean, I, I really think they're incredibly personal to Stewart, and they're based on some very, very personal things that he, as he would do, kind of cloak them in these, um, in the these more abstract images and and turned it into something that could be relatable uh, and taken, you know, many interpretations, but they really come from a really personal place with him. So, musically, Swine so already mentioned the slowing it down. I'm not going to bring that into, into play again. I think that was a really good idea as well for the song. I totally agree that it, it makes the the sentiments of the song um stronger and especially that chorus i love the rhythm guitar parts in this song and i spoke about this with lost patrol uh i love love stewart's rhythm playing on here it just it's very this great celtic feel to it and it's very skids like i mean you can see that it came right out of the skids you know, this, this this line that he plays throughout the verses i think the real star of this song is the bass playing i mean the bass playing of this song is just mind-boggling i mean we we always talk about tony's bass as being a third guitar and i don't think you hear it anywhere else on this album as strongly as you do on this song i mean he's his his bass playing is just going all over the place uh, but it but it's not it, it works perfectly i mean it's not overplaying it's playing exactly what the song really needs to make it a a classic big country song and especially in that in those uh instrumental sections like swine mentioned the part where it's it's really sort of um mimicking and going right along with the guitar lines it's just it's it's incredible it's just beautiful And the, and the music really has a sense of sailing to it, really. It, it's got this sense of being out on the open sea. And as I listened to it so much in preparation for the song and talking about the song, I really got a lot of musical vibes of the song The Sailor at times. I mean, I think there there's a lot of, uh, especially in, in in the final breakdown of The Sailor when it really kicks in, I think there are a lot of close action type of sounds in it. The funny thing is, is that there is Ebo on this song, too, and it's done in a very beautiful, melodic way. If you if you listen to it, listen to the song after that first musical interlude, and it sort of slows down and breaks down, you can hear that Ebo in the background. Sometimes you don't think of this song as having Ebo in it, but it is in there, and it's it adds a lot, I think, to to the song. Obviously, they didn't replicate that live, but uh, but on the album, I think it really is a great melodic addition to the song. There's also this great Tony bass run that I've always loved, and it's so cool. It comes at about one minute and 40 seconds into the song, and it's right when they're about to kick back into the, uh, the main riff of the song. And I first became really aware of it, in the live version that they did at the Bearland show, the New Year's Eve show, because the crowd actually cheers after it, which is really cool. Just this really, really cool little bass run. Great little moments like that throughout the song. And one other thing that I really love about this song, and this this changes a little bit with the next song we're going to talk about, but most of the songs on this the album are this way, but this one is a really great example. You really get the feel of the whole band playing live on this song. And it, I don't know how they recorded it, but it really has a great live feel to it that I love. Uh, Mark's drums are, you know, it sounds like he's playing everything in the moment. Uh, I love his playing on this song. Uh, as Tony said in his in his little comment of it, it's just so musical. The, the song just it's just so musical and and to add that musicality to these incredible lyrics i mean what a bar they're setting so 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 anyone who who would think that this song is is kind of a filler type big country song i i can't wrap my head around that you know to me this is one of their greatest songs in their catalog there's one other thing that i that i want to mention about this that I that that's always I've always wondered about, and maybe someone here can add something to it. I I don't know if there's anything to add. I think it's just a moment in the song, but it's a moment that uh, I never really noticed initially until a few years after hearing this song. But if you listen to this song and the last verse when Stuart says the lovers wait who walk no more, and as he's stretching that line out, and you're getting ready to go back into the last, I'll carry you home, you can hear someone in the background saying. Uh, saying what seems to be an owl like heart of the world type of owl (laughs) it's like the lover's way to walk no more and you hear ow (laughs) i swear it's in there listen to it this could be like the first recorded version of the heart of the world type of owl type of line (laughs) You, you, you clearly hear somebody saying something singing something it's almost like oh type of thing, but listen to it; it's in there. So th- there are all kinds of great little moments in the song musically. And again, just to reiterate what Fine said about those final harmonies and the way the song ends, I completely agree. This is how you end a song, and the way the the way that Stuart harmonizes at the end with himself, and that's that's actually Stuart. I could tell that's his voice there at the end. I don't think that's Tony, but it, Tony did it live. It doesn't matter, but. When you when you get that call and response, I will carry you home. I will carry you home. I will carry you home. And then the the way they harmonize at the end just sort of bring that to a close. Yeah, it is beautiful. And and even though this song is born out of difficulty and pain and challenges, you know, I I think I think that's what Stewart even said initially that he he liked to write about that kind of thing. He liked to write about the beauty of of these types of conditions and there is a beauty in it just like kind of the pride that grows in hardship kind of feeling there can be a beauty in this kind of pain as well because there is it, it It presents it presents an opportunity to display the intensity of the love that is there and i think that you get that in this song so while while it's born from difficult circumstances and trying circumstances it gives the opportunity for him to display the rawness of the love that he had for his, for his father and the raw, the rawness of the love that he has for his own kids. And there is something just absolutely beautiful about that. And that last line, I will carry you home. Again, you could take that as, as being Stuart, the child wanting his dad to be back so much that he's saying, I will carry you home. I will bring you home. And you can also think of it in a good way as Stuart being on that airplane Thinking of the airplane carrying him home to his family and and to his beloved son and wife, so there are good things about it. There are bittersweet things about it, but um, all in all, I mean, this is just a, an unbelievable song to me. I, I there's so many, uh, you know, it's not like it stands high on its own because there's so many other great examples of amazing songs, but this one gets a big spotlight from me. I think it's a a glorious, majestic, beautiful song. And it, it just boggles my mind that he could have written something like this and the band could have recorded something like this you know, on, on a first album. I mean, I know Stuart was a music veteran from his time in the skids, but still, good Lord, it's an amazing song.
1: It truly is. Even if you forget all these nuances that we talked about now and just take it at face value, I Will Carry You Home, and a nice little sweet song it would have worked at just that as a single, I think, yeah. and uh, gotten people over. And as as you have talked about in the past, I don't think they exploited the crossing enough for singles, especially in the U.S. I think you got two, which yeah. isn't yeah. much at all to begin with. Exactly. And uh, the U.K. really got three if you excluded really the single that wasn't part of the crossing. So... Um, it's not a lot really i think um the, the big question is what would the next one have been and it could have been a number of ones but i think this could have been at least on the short list
0: yeah i, I could see that and uh, that chorus is just so catchy and um so anthemic it's just yeah. uh, it's just great it's just great so you know we, we still haven't seen karate bark man uh i get the feeling that People are close to him. We're close to his trail. I get the feeling that he could be brought back before all this is said and done. But it's just as well for now because uh, there are no karate barks in close action once again.
1: Oh, dear.
0: But we're going to make up for it a little bit on the next one. Going to gain some ground. Will he be back by then?
1: He might be. He might be. Once so from now. Okay. (laughs) Good stuff.
0: So, how do you rank this one?
1: This gets a solid number three.
0: Nice. This is my number one. This is my number one song on the crossing. Wow, it's my favorite. It's always been right up there, Um, but I think uh, over the last few years, it's been my number one. I just it touches me more deeply than any other song on the album. I'm not saying a lot, but uh, that that chorus, you know, we keep talking about those just those simple lines in the chorus. got to me from the moment i first heard it and has always been something that's just stayed with me it's so beautiful and it, it just really moves me
1: right and uh, this probably disappoints uh, christina armstrong who knows that this was the last song we had a chance to have the same vote <laughs> sorry christina if you had voted it number three then we would have actually matched but nah but uh, this is a worthy number one. It's a worthy number three. It's 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 a song that belongs up there. So all of you guys who say this is a weak point,
0: the hell, man!
1: Think about what you're saying. And on that note, we have the public vote, where uh, they're, they're kind of going against us a bit. We are way above the public in this. This this gets a ranking of number seven. Wow! From the public, which is um, yeah, how to describe it? It gets uh, really not a huge number of number ones or number tens it's got seven of each so it's seven all across the boards so ranked number seven seven number one is seven number tens hmm. an average score of 5.95 it is um let me see it wouldn't be close to catching up to inverts on number six and it's only slightly ahead of chance at number eight
0: very interesting
1: very interesting so Close Action is number seven. I think people uh, underestimate it a bit. It's a secret weapon. It's not really, uh, you know, it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind, I think.
0: Yeah, it could be. Could be. Uh, yeah. I just love it. And of course, I've got to give them the same benefit of the doubt I always ask to be given to me, because I took a lot of grief for my ranking of the storm. But uh, So maybe for them, Close Action is very close as well, because the, the, these songs are all neck and neck.
1: You should take some grief for that. <laughs> I took a lot of it. <laughs> Good.
5: I stand by it. Good for you. Hi, Tom and Svine, This is Jamin Weeds dropping into The Great Divide. Believe it or not, it was four years after first seeing the In a Big Country video on Friday Night Videos that I heard any of the other songs from The Crossing. It would be nearly four years from seeing their energetic performance on the Grammys, where I was hoping Big Country would win, but was actually okay with Culture Club winning because they were different and exotic in their own way to Big Country. However, I was definitely upset that the police had won over Big Country. I did not like the police. Too popular, too self-assured, too mainstream already. I didn't start to collect music until a couple of years later in my teens. My favorite band at the time, U2, were hard to come by, so I couldn't ask parents to find them or other similar bands for presents. So given my very rural existence, my music collecting became very seasonal. Near the end of summer, before school started and farm work was ending in preparation for harvest, my family would take trips to visit relatives in the really big towns, you know, the ones with more than 3,000 people, which was the biggest within 30 miles of where I lived. Once in the big towns, I would find time to slip away and rifle through department store cassette tape racks, or if I could find such a thing, a record store. My seasonal cash working as a laborer for area farmers was largely spent on what I could find in those stores. And so it was, shortly after seeing the Look Away video on one of those family trips, that I was able to find a record store and my first big country album, The Seer. It was in the fall of the next year that I would finally find The Crossing. My two friends and I were put together as an academic challenge team for our high school and my father, our teacher, drove us to a university 75 miles away for this one-time competition. Afterwards, we went to a local restaurant inside a mall and in a department store in the mall, I was able to find the crossing. Boy by U2 and The Lion and the Cobra by Sinead. It was the crossing I listened to first on the drive back home along with one of my friends who remains an ardent big country fan to this day. We talked about our good fortune, and each took one side of the headphones from the Casio personal tape player to listen. In a big country, we knew. The creaking, almost honking guitar on Inwards and Thousand Stars was a little jarring, but they were fast, uplifting, a different approach to punk. Chance, I know we played over again as soon as we heard it. The epic storm was great for the drive home. Then we switched over to boy. At home, I liked the reels of Harvest Home and Fields of Fire, the driving Lost Patrol and Poor old Man Listening in the Dark. Those interlacing and chugging guitars and drum fills could have gone on forever. In fact, I know this is blasphemous, but I could have done without the jig at the end made a separate song of it, maybe called it Iron and Rope, and just let that mystical symphonic song continue on its way, just waiting for the next waves of guitars and the next massive drum fill. But it was close action that really caught me and that I played over and over. That stirring guitar, the shh-shh of the cymbals where you can feel the ship cutting the waves, and how much more epic can you get than... A score of years this line has run, above the crests that drown the sun, and I'll carry you home with the gods in my eyes. That song has carried me home so many times, as I ritually play it after a long drive and find myself five minutes from home. Now, after listening to the podcast, I can imagine a number of have-at-you's, being traded back and forth between the ships in the close action, some boardings, and some swashbuckling. So have at you, me bonnies,
1: and stay alive. Hello, guys. It's Andy from Australia here. Just thank you for doing this magnificent podcast and also for finally giving the crossing the deep dive treatment it truly deserves uh it's an album that i can even now continually find new and different interesting things happening musically or understanding things lyrically uh and how many albums can you say that about uh that have been around for nearly four decades this is it's truly remarkable once again
4: thanks so much for all
1: your effort and all your work Love what you do, and we'll chat to you soon.
2: Bye.
0: (laughs) Okay, here we go. Fields of Fire. It wasn't the first track I heard by the band, but it was the first track that really started to draw me in in a big way to the band. Um, you know, I've said many times that "Where the Rose Is Sown" is the song that sealed the deal for me, but "Fields of Fire" is the one that really got me interested. I'd heard it "In a Big Country" on the radio, and it didn't—it didn't hit me the way it did so many other people. Maybe it was because I was too young. I don't know, but "Fields of Fire" definitely did. But um, let's read what Tony said about this song first. Uh, he very short and sweet. Uh, but I think he's he's right on the money. He said the track that defined the sound of big country, brilliant, and I think that's very true. And it's it's very true in a lot of ways because we've heard about Steve Lillywhite. You know, this was the song that Steve Lillywhite worked with the band on, the first song that he worked with them on, and he really went out of his way to turn this into something for the band. And it was so inspiring to the band, Stewart especially, that he went off and wrote in a big country because of this song because he could finally get a feel for what the band was supposed to sound like. He, he finally, the sound in his head finally was matching with the sound that he was hearing coming out of the speakers. And so for that, I mean, this is a huge, huge song for the band in so many ways. You know, Whether you love the song or not, you know, it's still a cornerstone, one of the cornerstones of, of big country. And because of that, this, this song I... I I put right up there with the song in a big country and chance and this one as being the three songs that we have to really look at with fresh eyes and fresh ears if if we can do that because this song has become like those other two something more than a song it's 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 just a song that we've heard you know so many times we know it's going to get played at every show we've we've heard it countless times countless iterations of it um you know and even if even if we love it which I do you you eventually hear it so many times that it starts to not really become a song anymore. It just it's just its own entity, its own thing. It's fields of fire. That's here it is. Fields of fire. It's it's part of Big Country's DNA, the main strands of its of the band's DNA. But when we go to the, through these deep dives, I mean, I really think it's it's fun and it's it's a good challenge to try to. It's almost impossible, but to just try to wipe your mind clear of all these old feelings that have accumulated over the years about a song and like this, and to try to look at it fresh and try to connect, reconnect with that first time that you heard it and what it did to you and look at the song from that perspective, because I think you can more, more accurately judge the merits of the song if you can do that to some degree. So, you know, like I said, it's hard, if not impossible, but I'm going to try and hopefully you guys will try as well. And what's interesting is that, you know, when I thought about this song and then I was going to start, on this one and talk about it. Oh, Fields of Fire, that'll be pretty easy. But no, it's not. <laughs> this song is not easy at all. But what we know is that Stuart wrote the song, got the idea for this song, on these train journeys that he was taking with Bruce when Bruce and Stuart were writing a lot together and they would often travel between Edinburgh and London. And they would often see a lot of servicemen on the train. And coincidentally, the distance between both cities was... Four- <laughs> 400 miles you guessed it. So um Stewart would see these servicemen and he would often think about them especially because at this time period um, the UK was becoming involved in the Falklands war or the Falklands crisis. They they called it a crisis more than a war because it was such a such a small thing and yet people died, you know, in this crisis. So it's kind of belittling a way, in a way to them to say oh, well, it didn't really it wasn't really big enough to be called a war. We called it a crisis. But for the people who died in it, um, you know, it was, might as well have been called a war. And so at the time that, that this was happening and Stuart was having these experiences, I think all of this had just started. So nobody knew exactly what was going to happen with this Falkland situation, if it was going to escalate um, into something bigger than it ended up becoming. But uh, but still, you know, it was it – was, something that was happening, and people were being called into conflict and called into the 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 very real possibility that they were going to have to fight. So Stuart was seeing these servicemen on this train, knowing that they were possibly going someplace where they would be ha- soon having to, to fight. And um, he was wondering about what was going through their mind. And before I get too much into that, I'll just read some of his quotes. Um Stewart says at the time Bruce and I were traveling back and forwards to London on the train and always on the train between London and Edinburgh there's a lot of servicemen we sat and talked with them many's the time I just wondered whether any people I may have shared a few hours with on the train who got blown away for something that was to me anyway completely senseless totally senseless war all it served the purpose for was to get the old flags out let's rally behind the boys I look back at it from the other side of view, being one of the boy's parents who didn't come back and ended up lying in bits in some bloody, cold, damp, filthy field on a wee stupid island in the middle of the Atlantic that nobody has even heard of before that. The songs are just about the sort of hopes and fears that every sort of parent is bound to go through with their children, just the sheer trauma of growing up and all that going to waste for someone else's idea of patriotism. So even though he said songs plural here, he was you know, in a lot of respects talking about fields of fire. And here's another comment from Melody Maker. This is the one I was thinking of. Melody Maker in 1990. He says, I was wondering if the guys I sat and talked to on the train had been involved in the Falklands War and how I would feel. I was a new parent at the time. If it was my kids that were involved in it, it was the first time I tried to put into a song how my responsibilities extended beyond myself. So, the, there you have the context for this song, and it 's funny because we we 've got in the song this idea of a conversation happening, and Stuart talks about these conversations happening, so these weren't just it, it wasn 't just him looking at them and imagining things. these were conversations that he had with these with these servicemen and uh, i 'd love to you know have been a fly on the on the train and and be able to hear some of the things that were talked about. It would have been very, very interesting but um So that's the context uh, of this song. Um, Now, Fields of Fire, the title, was also a book that could have very well have inspired the title. It was written by a a guy named Jim Webb about his time in the Vietnam War, and he wrote it. He he changed the names of the people who were in the story, but uh, he basically wrote it based on his own personal experience in the Vietnam War, and that was written in 1976, I believe. So... You know, knowing Stewart's love for reading this type of, of literature, it's very possible that he read that book. It's considered one of the best books of its kind about the Vietnam War. Maybe uh, nicked the title from that book, who knows? But the song itself really isn't about that, about the Vietnam War. Um, but of course, it's about war in general, so he could have definitely taken it from that. And I'll get a little bit into what I think Fields of Fire actually means, and and whether I... You know what, what the meaning of that line, that phrase, Fields of Fire, is, in my opinion, based on this song. But uh, you know, looking at this song at, from a single's perspective, um, it was the second single released from the album, if you count Harvest Home, which Swine and I talked about in the past uh, episode. We don't even really count that, even though uh, f- officially, I guess, it's counted as the first single. But it, it's not from the album because it's not the album version. So this is really the first album version song recorded by Steve Lillywhite that was re- released as a single, and it was released early. It was released in February 8- on February eighteenth, nineteen eighty three. It made it to number ten in the UK. It made it to number fifty two in the US. So big discrepancy there. So you know it. I heard the song after In a Big Country, but this was released before In a Big Country. But it sort of primed the palette, I guess you could say, in the the United States for what was to come. But we'll talk more about the musicality of the song later. I'll start with the lyrics again. So, keeping in mind the context of Stuart sitting on this train, looking at these servicemen, um, wondering what they might be going into, uh, if they're going to be, if any of the guys he's talking to might have been killed you know, wondering about that, and then thinking from his own perspective. I mean, we sort of talked about this on Close Action, the idea of Stuart looking at things from not only the point of view of him being a child, but also being a parent, and we get that here as well. Him being a new parent, thinking about, man, how would I feel if Callum, young Callum, was going off to war? Uh, how horrible would that be for a parent? And so he's, he's thinking about that from a perspective that he never thought about before. And he's also also thinking about it from the realistic perspective of and the specific perspective of what's happening here. So, not a whole lot of lyrics to go go with on this song, which is probably a good thing for time. So we'll go from the very beginning. Between a father and a son, between the city, and the city. Between a Father and son. The- What's he saying here? He, he's obviously comparing things. He's 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 trying to set a stage here for I think a vibe for bonds that exist. Obviously. So between a father and a son, that's pretty straightforward. It's pretty clear. What is what is this bond between a father and a son? Um it's funny that we we just talked about that on the previous song, and we get this sense in that one of this incredible bond of love that's there whether it's reciprocated or not um, it's there so we we get that here and I think he's just mentioning these things and this kind of comes back to this idea of random thoughts it it is kind of these random thoughts but they point to this overall vibe of these relationships between people and how they're affected by things like like this war that was happening at the time and, and just this feeling of you know, not wanting someone that you love to be outside of your control or to be imperiled or, or to be in danger. So between a father and a son, you know, that's pretty clear the kind of bond that exists there. What about between the city and the one? I had to think about that for a while. What, what is this, the one? Is it the, the one from the Matrix? Neo being the one? <laughs> he is the one. I'm not the one. Sorry, kid. I think what this means here is, and I think this is something that Stuart wrote about a lot in his songs, this whole idea of a love and a respect for people, just for individual people and what they mean as individuals. He kind of talked about this in a line from Can You Feel the Winter? Have you any measure what just one of us is worth? And that kind of is, a, is something that went throughout his songs. One person is worth a lot. So I think with between the city and the one, he's saying there's a bond between the city, which is many people, and just one person, a city cannot be a city without many individual stories. You often hear New York described that way. Yeah, there's a there's an old Kiss song. Here's our obligatory Kiss reference. Um, there's an old Kiss song called called Naked City, and there's a line um, that says, "In the Naked City, there are ten million stories, ten million people." At the time when this song was written, there are more there now, but making up the city. But there are. 10 million separate stories. So I think what he's saying in this with Between the City and the One is that it's easy to, th- to think of things in this broad sense uh, of a city being a thing. But you've got to always remember that a city is made up of individual people. And you should always remember those individual people, and you can look at that from a war perspective as well. You know, it's easy to it's easy to look at statistics, and I mentioned this a little bit in the beginning, where I didn't look up like how many casualties there were in that war, but uh, I know there weren't that many. But you can look at it and say, oh, well, that was just, uh, you know, I'm just saying, throwing this off the top of my head here. Again, I don't know the actual number, but you could say, oh, well, a hundred people died. That uh, wasn't many in that war. That was that was pretty good. That the casualty count was low. But you look at that if you look at it at it that way it's so dehumanizing you still have 100 people who died you know 100 100 lives forever changed on so many well many more than 100 because the people who knew them and loved them and i think that's the point of this song you know you've got to look at things from an individual perspective and look at what's happening to individuals don't look at it from this broad cold um detached feeling so i think when he puts those two lines together you know, between a father and a son, that's clear, but between the city and the one isn't necessarily clear at first, but he's saying you know, there should be a bond there too. It may be not be as strong as a father and a son bond, but we should be always boiling everything down to individual stories, not just looking at this gigantic thing of, of a city full of millions of people, but also remembering that there are many individual stories that make that up. I think I mentioned this on another show, but I always often had this idea, I wish I had the technical ability to do it cuz I think it would it would make an interesting statement. But it it goes with this with this song and the ideas behind this song, I think. I always had this I- idea of um doing something where you know a lot of kids play these shooter video games and I play them too. So I'm not making any kind of statement about that. I play them at times. But when you play these games, you know, you're you're just shooting like countless soldiers. Of countless soldiers that usually all look the same and you're firing at them and, oh, I killed that guy, I killed that guy. Wouldn't it be interesting to, to do a video where you're seeing a video game being played like that and you're seeing all of these um, soldiers, these enemy soldiers being gunned down one after the other and people are going, yeah, you got him, you got him. But all of a sudden, one of them gets shot and suddenly everything stops on the screen and the camera zooms into that video char- game character of nameless enemy and suddenly the camera goes back in time and everything goes back in time in this one character's life and suddenly he goes back and and you're with him when he's with his comrades before they actually take the field and fight and you can see him joking with them and he's made friends and you can see the friends that he has in his squadron and then it goes back further and you see him in basic training and how he's working hard to to make it into the ranks that he needs to go into and then you go back even further and you see his family hugging him as he's leaving for that basic training and then it goes back even further and you see him in school um, as a younger boy uh, learning about life and learning about things maybe having his first girlfriend it's all very quick and then you go back to the very beginning and you see his mother and father holding him as an infant and you see that moment and all of a sudden you go forward at lightning speed once again to the moment where he's being killed in this video game screen and then everything continues and you're shooting more guys and more guys and more guys and then that video ends so the, the reason for that
1: we talked be, about we talked about this before by the way and, I, I know i know we did I, and, I, and i think i mentioned it then this happens in the first uh, austin powers movie where they kill nameless henchmen and then they stop everything and go to interview his wife and kids and uh, do the whole thing and then they go back to the death scene I think he's played by Rob Blow.
3: Hello? Yes, this is Mrs. Harwin. Yes, my husband is the henchman in Dr. Evil's private army.
6: What? Oh my god! Thanks for calling. Hi, Mom.
3: Sit down, Billy. I've got some bad news. Your stepfather was run over by a steamroller.
6: But, Mom, since Dad left, Steve's been like a father to me. Um, People never think how things affect the family of a henchman.
0: That must have been (laughs) in my subconscious memory. Oh, perfect man. yeah well yeah sorry to repeat it again, but I thought it fits well in this song because I think that's what Stuart's trying to trying to say here is like look at these individual stories and keep these in mind so then we get to these other lines before the teacher and the test before the journey and the rest what what do those mean you know what what do these things mean um these are other bonds because obviously a teacher and a test go together journey and a rest go together um I feel like we're taking like uh, some sort of school-required tests like the SAT, compare and contrast these things. Um, but what could this have to mean in context with this song? And why, why the word before? I think before is the crucial word here, because he doesn't say between the teacher and the test. He doesn't say between the journey and the rest. He says before. So why would he say before? Well, again, this is only my interpretation. But the way I look at this is that he's referring to a time of innocence here, with these two lines and I think we'll get this again later when he says before the falling of the West before the teacher and the test, I think refers to the time when a child before he even goes to school. And it's just like the sense of innocence in a child's life before the journey and the rest. I think that refers to before the idea develops in a child's mind that life is a journey. Um, And if you take, look at it that way, rest could be, you know, the final end of that journey. But, and, and to make this a little bit more clear what I'm talking about, I'll bring in another personal story of my own kids. It wasn't that long ago that I, I was getting ready to go to bed and putting my kids to bed. And um, one of them, I walked by his room and he was crying and I heard him crying in his bed. And I, I, I went in and I said, what's the matter? And he was looking at like an old photo book of when he was a little kid, a little baby. And he was crying and he said, I wish I could go back to being a baby. I wish I could go back to being a little little kid. And the little context of this is that this particular child has been having kind of a tough time this year in school because he's getting ready to go to middle school. And this is his last year in elementary school. And he's being asked to do a lot more than he's ever been asked to do. And he's starting to become aware of the fact that he's getting older and he's getting more responsibility, not just in school but in life. He's being More is being asked of him. And he's becoming... Um, He's becoming, he's growing up basically, which as a parent is hard to see in some ways. It's great to see in other ways, but it's always bittersweet. And as, as from his perspective, it's, it's scary. You know, he's becoming growing, he's growing up and he's seeing life and he's starting to see life in a different way. It's not just this, this life where everything is provided for you and everything is wonderful and every moment is an adventure and everything is playtime and, and discovering things, you know, like you did when you were really little what you can remember of that time. It's now becoming a time where there are teachers and tests and he's, he's dealing with that because he's got a strict teacher right now They never had before. And, you know, journeys, the, the journey of life is starting to become, he's starting to become cognizant of that, that there's things that he has to start thinking about. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? What what kinds of things do I need to start getting into? What kinds of things do I need to start, you know, dealing with? Um, it's not all just about Playtime anymore and magic and adventure. You know, there, there's still a lot of that in there, and I'm hopefully we always keep something of that within us. But um, there's a lot more hard stuff that's coming. So I feel like that's what this is reflecting on. And you say, well, why would he reflect on that? You know, what what what's the point of reflecting on that in this song? Um, I don't know exactly, but but one thing that I could relate to that relates to a military idea is that the. Uh, and I think this has happened in a lot of military movies, but there's one that I saw not too long ago, again, I didn't like it when I saw it when it first opened in the theaters, but I ended up really liking it as a much older adult, and that is The Thin Red Line. It's a Terrence Malick movie, and his movies are often difficult to to get into in a lot of ways. They're very abstract, and a lot of abstract imagery, much like a big country song. This movie had a lot of abstract things in it, but one thing that it had was that a lot of these soldiers, when they were in... In the most intense moments of, of being in battle, or their minds were really struggling to, to grasp what was happening around them, the movie would often show these quick flashbacks. And many of these flashbacks were these times when they were young boys, and and they would, there would be no explanation of them. They would just show these flashbacks of them being young boys on a farm, for example, and they would just be looking at, at the fields and Malik the director would loves to show like trees and waving in the in the wind and and big shots of open fields and things like this and you just see like this a child just relaxing and laying in a field and looking up at the sky and then it would cut back to them um in the present day so you know this movie came out before or after the song was written so I'm not saying the movie was necessarily anything to do with that but I think it's this idea of in these in these difficult times, you know, people often think about these things. People often go back to these things and just have these moments where they think about these uncomplicated times. And I think just mentioning those in those lyrics is kind of Stuart's way of almost having that flashback that I just mentioned from this movie. It's like the, these these guys are, are about to, to enter this difficult um, moment in their life and they don't know what's going to happen. And then suddenly there's this flashback of you know, older times, younger times, times when there weren't these things weren't um, in front of them. When things were much more free and easy, and life was beautiful. And I think there's this dichotomy that he's trying to show there. Um, so that's just one idea. Uh, and then the next lines: "Shining eye will never cry. The beating heart will never die. A house on fire knows no shame. I will be coming home again." really interesting lyrics here and i really just like i thought close action is a precursor to tall ships go i really think that this song is very much a precursor to where the rose is sown and they're very much intertwined and in fact i think these lyrics are very very much in line with with the lyrics that we get in where the rose is sown and i'm talking about the propaganda type lyrics And I get the feeling that these lines in Fields of Fire are coming from the viewpoint of the soldier on the train. And he's scared, and he's trying to reassure himself. And he's trying to reassure himself with these almost ridiculous comments and ridiculous lines. But you get the sense that they're that they're almost propagandistic lines that maybe have been used in the past to bolster his fighting spirit. And now that it's getting closer to actual fighting he's thinking about these things you know he's he's getting his courage up he's trying to draw on these things to get his courage up it's going to be okay because when you look at these lines i mean you you can't take them seriously because in a lot of ways they're ridiculous a shining eye will never cry you know of course a, sh- a shining eye will cry any eye will cry a beating heart will never die well you know obviously just because a heart is beating doesn't mean it's not going to stop beating at some point i really think that these lines are Sarcasm um at least these first two lines he's it's it's the soldier stealing himself to what's to come with with this sense of propaganda that he's that he's been taught or these you know I'm not gonna die, you know my heart is beating, and it's a sense of youth too you know that that you're impervious, and I really p- feel like it's these soldiers on the train who know that they're about to go into combat and they're scared like anyone would be, and for many of them, for all of them, I would assume it's probably the first combat they've ever Experienced. So what are they thinking? What are they thinking of the, at the time? Probably the same types of things that led them to to join the service to begin with. And you see it reflected in where the rose is sown, too. You know, it's okay. This is this is uh, something that we're, we we sh- we should do. It's a worthy thing that I'm doing. You know, we're doing the right thing. I'm going to be fine. We're the best trained army. I'm not going to die. We're going to be taken care of, and it's going to go great. Like, he's trying to buoy his courage. And also, a house on fire knows no shame. I will be coming home again. Same thing. I think, I think the house on fire here is going to lead into the idea of fields of fire and what I think that, that means and what that's a metaphor for in this song. The house on fire in this case, I think, is that the person is going through mental distress on this train. He's, he's terrified, as anybody would be. He's terrified of what's to come. He doesn't know what to expect. He knows he's going to be going into some live action, some live combat, and the house on fire. I think signifies his mental state, which is on fire from the confusion and from the fear and from the uncertainty. But he's telling himself it's okay to be afraid. There's no shame in being afraid. Um, it's all right. There's nothing. Everybody's going to be scared, but I know I'm going to come home again. I'm going to be. I'm going to come home again. It's okay. So I think that whole part of the lyrics there is from the viewpoint of the soldier and how the soldier is trying to reassure himself. And it's very possible that, you know, some of these lines came from the conversations that Stuart was having with the soldier. I'm not saying the soldier said, my shining eye will never cry. <laughs> I don't think that happened, but, um, you know, he could have just said, Hey, you know, I'm scared, but everybody's scared. I- I- I'm sure I'll be all right. And maybe Stuart took that and turned it into these be- beautiful, poetic lines. So, um, then we get to the chorus part. Miles,
6: a word, you miles, on of
0: and again, we've already established that 400 miles is the train journey. So that sets the stage for the 400 miles as being part of the train journey. Um, in fact, the song was originally called 400 Miles, apparently, and then it was changed to Fields of Fire, which I think was a great change. Whoever decided to make that, much better title. But 400 Miles Without a Word Until You Smile, I think that's a really great way to explain how these conversations started. And again, we've talked about the fact that these weren't just things that Stuart was imagining. He was actually talking with these people. These people, He's, He said that. He's talked, he talked to them on the train, many conversations. So you get the sense that you know they're on this train, they're aware of each other's presence, and we've probably – many of us maybe have experienced this before where you know, you're know you stuck with someone for a long period of time, a stranger, and there's an awkwardness about it. You don't really know how to strike up a conversation. And then maybe there's an acknowledgment. There's like a, a nonverbal acknowledgment. You like, look at each other. You, you bond over something that you've both seen at the same time, and you smile at each other like to acknowledge, yeah, I saw that too or I see that too. Or you just smile to acknowledge like, yeah, I see you there. And I, I recognize that you're here with me, and that moment where you you smile at the other person is sort of a, a way to say and to signal, you know, let's let's it's okay to talk to me. We can talk. We can we can have a conversation. And I think that's what this line beautifully sums up. You know, 400 miles. We don't talk at all until you smile at me, and I smile at you, and then we had this conversation. So 400 miles on fields of fire. Well, fields of fire in in relation to combat. And in relation to that book, fields of fire, was a literal th- was a literal thing. Fields of fire in the Vietnam War. You know, they dropped napalm on fields in Vietnam, and the, and they became actual fields of fire, flame. Um, that, I think that's where the title in that book came from, and and it's also a way to describe you know battlefields where there's firing and there's there's combat. Um, so we can look at it that way but I also think it's in this case in this song I think Fields of Fire goes back to that a house on fire line I think it's a, a metaphor for for mental fields mental fields of fire uh, this train journey is one that's a nervous journey for these servicemen because they're going somewhere where they're going to be fighting where there's going to be danger and you know when you're on a journey to something that's when you're on a journey that's to something that's not going to be fun that journey is is spent in mental you know i don't want to say anguish necessarily but a lot of mental activity thinking about especially when you're stuck somewhere and you can't move around to take your mind off of anything so i think fields of fire really is talking about that mental state and that fear and that that nervousness about what's to come and then really the only other lines in the song that uh come in the next verse
6: between a woman and a boy, between a child and a toy, before the falling off the rails,
0: before the journey and the rails, for a hundred miles. Between a woman and a boy, between a child and his toy, I think that's just a reflection, the same thing about between a father and a son, um, sort of restated. In a different way, between a woman and a boy, that bond there. And and Stuart could be thinking about Sandra and Callum again here, which he thought about often, uh, in these in these lyrics, obviously. Between a child and his toy. A bond between a child and his toy can be similar to the child. You know, it could be the first the first time a child shows that love, that nurturing love for something, when he when he loves a toy so much that he, he takes care of it. And it could even be like a Stuart could even be thinking at this point of a toy that maybe he gave Callum while he was away, and that Callum looks to as symbolic of Stuart, so again, these images here uh these random images without a whole lot of context, but I don't think they're not they're not really trying to tell a straightforward narrative story; they're just sort of flashing these images here that that get you to think about these things and and think about these bonds, and the reason for that is to be. Showing how important these bonds are, and to get you to feel you know the 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 fear and the pain when someone related to these bonds is in mortal danger and could be going somewhere where they could die and and you don 't have the the opportunity to control what 's going to happen and then I think the, the same sentiments are repeated in this before the falling of the west before the journey, and the rest he repeats again but again i think these are reflections on times of innocence that that people would turn to in these moments of of mental difficulty and before the falling of the west you know i take that to be the american west uh, that was settled here because we often in in america you know we often refer to this time before that part of our country was settled by pioneers and and industry was brought there and um you know the steam train started making its way through these these places we look at these places as being untouched by by commerce as being untouched by trade as being untouched by you know some might say greed of capitalism or whatever but they were the native people lived in this area and it was all about nature it was all about the beauty of nature it was an innocent area and that's not to say that there weren't you know squabbles among and fights and everything among the native people there as well and that certainly did happen but there's this sense of the west being before it was settled before it quote unquote fell as being this innocent place of just absolute amazing beauty like the world had you know never seen before this untouched undiscovered country um, that just existed in its own world and environment and it was very innocent and then when when people kept coming and kept coming and kept building and kept settling that was lost so i think that's another reflection of this time of innocence before life really intruded and and uh and took over it and and that progress was unstoppable that progress in a way had to happen um it was there was no scenario where that was not going to happen just like there's no scenario where life isn't going to demand new things from you and new responsibilities from you as you grow older but there is still always this wonderful appeal of this time that I wish it could be like this forever and I think that's what it's what these lines are pointing to so it's this interesting interesting contrast of of this time of innocence and these bonds that people have and this time of danger and fear and uh, and and difficulty uh, that that happen as you as you get older and face all these other responsibilities in this case responsibilities that many of us have never faced, which is to actually fight life or death situation in combat, you know, and only the people who have done that could accurately describe what that's like. So I'm not going to say these are, I don't think these are Stewart's best lyrics on the album by any stretch. I mean, there's not even a lot of them, but uh, I do think they're very powerful and very strong lyrics, uh, especially when you consider that they are taken from this, these, this idea of him having these conversations on this, on this train. Um so I think they're really again very interesting poetic use of imagery here that uh, is difficult to penetrate at times. but when you get the context of when he wrote the song and why he wrote it, uh, it really helps a lot. it really helps a lot and it's a shame that in a way that that didn't come until you know you could read some of these interviews. I mean, I always knew it was about war and and just from the title even even then I knew the fields of fire, symbolize war but then of course when you see the video which is explicitly about war that is driven home even further but when you hear him talk about the inspiration it really adds new layers to the song Shot! so there are the lyrics um, talk about the music a little bit I think uh, I think Tony is dead on the money as I said you know, this is the song that really defined that early big country sound I really think so and it, it was it for me so many just amazing things about this song and again we've got to try to look at it with fresh ears and fresh eyes because you you get to a point where you're you're cold to the the great elements of this song of which there are so many um but let's look at steve lillywhite for example for from the beginning here because he did some interesting things with this song some of which i most of which great the great majority of which i absolutely love but some things are just interesting and some things i kind of would have preferred he had taken a different route to, but it's still, you can't argue with success, right? But the main thing that he did with this song, which I think is really interesting, is that this is the song that he had Mark Brzecki play one drum part at a time when recording the drums for this song. And that's why quite often when I've talked about these songs, I've praised a lot of them for sounding like Mark was playing the whole kit. He's playing live. I, I like that feeling much more. And I think that with this song um the drums are great and the drums are gigantic and there there's a huge thumping militaristic feel to them but for me I can also hear that they're not being played live I can hear like overdubs you can hear the overdubs happening of rolling tom fills for example I don't mind a few overdubs but I much prefer them um over top of an already live kit. I don't really like the notion of every piece being played at the at, at at a different time and then put together because I think that takes away a little bit from the spontaneity and the feel of the song. But, you know, I played this on the very first show that I did, but I think it's worth playing Quickly again, and that is Steve Lillywhite talking about this process and why he did it with Mark on the drums.
3: I had done this one song, Fields of Fire, and, and all of a sudden, the, the the lead singer, the lead guy of the band, Stuart Adamson, who is not with us, we can talk about that later he said, Steve, I've got it. This is our sound. I know what I can do now. And he went away and, and, and he hadn't written in a big country. And, you know, when you have great musicians, it, it enables you to to open up yourself to to new ideas because you know that they can go with them. And for instance, with the drums, I, I decided I would get the drummer to record each drum separately. Wow. Now that seems like a, you know, I'm... Uh, It was a a lot of painstaking work, but I I would love to say to him, okay, take your drum part, now play it without the tom-toms. And if the the pattern was tom-tom based, you know, I could see his brain going getting weird and and then he would he would learn this new drum part and you know just all that i I love challenging musicians if they're good musicians sometimes if you challenge a musician you have to know when to challenge them because you know everyone likes to succeed in a challenge and if i challenge someone to do something and they failed it would actually take us back in the recording process so i have to be very careful how i approach working with different people and 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 what i what i can expect from them
0: so you know very interesting production technique and i don't think he would repeat it on any of these other songs maybe a little bit on in a big country but um i he wanted to make a huge impression on the band and maybe as he, as they started to work together more he realized that you know that worked out okay but i really prefer the sound of mark playing and he's certainly capable more than capable of doing it um and maybe as he got to know mark a little bit better he was he let him do that on the rest of the songs but sometimes producers will go to, go this route you know they they want they want complete control over every single sound. And I think that's the only that's the only slight that I would give to the production on this song. And it's with an asterisk because, again, I like the overall sound of this song, but I would have preferred to hear a more live sound on the drums with this. It accomplishes the gigantic big sound that Lily White was going for, but I think it's at the expense of some of the feel for the song. Um, that's the only negative. Now, here's the other interesting thing that he did. That, that drove me absolutely nuts at one period in my life uh, because it made the song impossible for me to figure out um, he the, the song was originally done in the key of d, and the main reason for that I think is because Stewart plays so many guitar lines where the the d string on the guitar is droning. He did this in the skids all the time you know one of the greatest examples of that is uh um of one skin, you know the the riff on of one skin is a perfect example of how he would play that, and very, very reminiscent of Fields of Fire. It's a it's a riff where the open D string would be droning, and then on the higher string, the G string, he would be playing a melody line. So the, the D string would be constantly be droning. their melody would be playing on the G string, and it would give this great biting sound, and it would have a bagpipe-type sound to it as well because you know bagpipes are built around a drone happening while melodies are being played, and that's what he would bring to the guitar here as well. There was a drone happening while a melody was being played. And he wasn't the first guitarist to do it, but when you look at the melodies that he was playing, which were very Celtic and Scottish-sounding, and then you add that drone thing going on, it really gave it that bagpipe type of feel so it needed to be in the key of d now the problem with that from steve Lillywhite's perspective is that the song key was too low for stewart and if you listen to some of the uh, the demo uh, versions of this song which were done in the key of d you can kind of hear that especially on the like the john brant version between the father and his son between the sea and the a very low-sounding um, vocal you know, with, with the way he was singing the verse. Well, Steve Littlewhite apparently heard that and said, you know what? I want you to sing this in the key of E. I want to move this up to the key of E because you'll have to sing higher. You'll have to struggle a little bit to get some of the notes, but it'll add to the to the emotion of the song. Before the journey
6: and the rest, a
0: And I think probably a lot of that was due to his work with U2 as well, because they were very known for doing songs where Bono was was singing at the top of his range. And he was often on record Bono as saying that he loved that feel of, of a singer when they couldn't quite hit a note or they could just barely hit a note. And you could tell they were struggling, but they got it or they came very close to getting it. But he loved that because he felt like the emotion was really there in that struggle to get that note. So I think Steve Lillewight wanted some of that in this song. And I think it was a good choice because it it does really uh, break out the intensity of the song more. Now here's the problem. When you you shift the key from D to E, then those guitar lines I talked about with those droning strings are no longer possible to play. So what Big Country had to do, and I clarified this uh, with Bruce not too long ago, because I wasn't sure... Um, they had they actually tuned the guitar up to to E, and that's a very rare thing to do, at least in my experience. You know, quite often people will tune a guitar down so that a singer doesn't have to sing as high. So they tuned everything up and played the same things. Now you'll notice that they never replicated this live. When they played this live, they went right back to the detuning because Stewart, you know, you know, it was a struggle I think for him to to sing this in E. And in a live situation, when you're touring and doing the same song night after night, you don't want to be struggling every night to try to hit the notes in a song. So they they just kept it in D, and nobody was any wiser or cared. You you never heard anybody say, you know, man, I wish they kept playing this song in E live or higher. Most people didn't even know. And, uh, you know, with all the emotion of a live performance, you don't really feel that change so much. But I think it was an interesting decision by Lily White to change it to E and I think it I think it was a good one. I really do for this album. I think it it really does add to the to the feel and the emotion um of the song. So, you know, for other other portions of this song, I mean, you've got the beautiful lead line, that that great lead line. That's the classic iconic moment of the song. <laughs> Again, we've heard it so many times that we may not think about how cool that is, but it's such a cool part. It's such an incredibly catchy part. And the harmonies of that part, um, you know, what can you say but bagpipes? I'm sorry. I know the band hated that at the time, but it sounds just like bagpipes. And if you're someone who loves, you know, that kind of sound, and I was as a kid, I'd love that kind of Celtic sound, that I heard that, and I thought, what is that? That sounds amazing. I think there's absolutely no shame in it. I know the band was sick of hearing about it, even from an early stage. Um, but, you know, I mean, you can't complain too much about it, because that's exactly the way it sounds. They even had the, a bagpiper in the video for this song, okay? So, you know, that doesn't didn't go too far in uh, keeping people from talking about bagpipes. Um, again, I say embrace it. Yeah, embrace it. I'm not ashamed of it. Yeah, it sounds like bagpipes. Next question. So, you know, this song is probably the one that sounds the most like it because the the, the melodies are are very bagpipe-esque and you've got the droning thing going on. Um, you've got the great bass playing from Tony in, during that part. Um, we've talked about Mark's drums already. So it, it's, and there's so many little things in this song musically too. It, and it's ironic that it was about a, that it was inspired from a train conversation because the song really has a sense of a train chugging along down the tracks, even from the very beginning. I mean, you can hear and see the steam coming out of the train in your mind as it's, as it's going. And then the video has them on a train too, which of course drives that image home. little things like the, the clicking of the guitars where they do, like, you know, live they would do the, the infamous scratch version of the song where they would start this song out and they would do the percussive thing on the guitars. Well, they actually did that on the original version, the album version of the song. I often thought of this as like big country version of Should I Stay or Should I Go? It was the... It has that kind of feel to it, like da, da 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 It sounds very much like that. And when they would do the Scratch version, they would often play a little bit of Should I Stay or Should I Go. So it might have been in their minds as well.
3: on a road, runner, road runner.
6: Driving fast and miles an It's always tease, tease, tease. See me walking around, I'm a boy. Come
0: You know, one other thing about this song that that's always been talked about well not always but some people have talked about it um there's always been this thing <laughs> where they said it's that big country ripped off uh the guns of navarone there was a movie called the guns of navarone and there's a soundtrack and there's a line in the soundtrack um which was written by Dmitri Tiomkin, i think that's how you say his last name and it does have a fields of fire sound to it <music> In fact, if you read now, I was doing research and it said, Big Country nicked uh, the guns of Navarone for portions of their famous song, Fields of Fire. They say it like it's fact. But if you listen to an interview that was done at the time, they're actually asked about this question because apparently more people were talking about this. And I will play a little portion of that right now, and Stuart will put this to rest. I must ask, the Fields of Fire sounds to me... Like inspired by the guns of Navarone. Hundreds of people have said that I've never
6: heard
4: it, and neither Stuart. Yeah, actually, I've never ever heard the guns of Navarone. Can you tell me how they sound?
0: Well, here goes. Do 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 do
6: do.
4: I can see it now. No, it doesn't come from that at all. Not really embarrassed now.
0: So, according to Stuart and Bruce, that was never a part of this song. It does. There is a little similarity there. Um, but uh, apparently, it's just coincidence. So, um, the last thing I'll th- say about this musically, which I think was interesting from Stuart is when he was talking about this song in 1990. He says, "I was never a big fan of Mark's more militaristic playing." And when I heard that, I was like, "I was angry that he said that." I was like, "Come on, what? Come on, man! Come on, man! Come on, man! What are you talking about?" And um, that's that's what that's one of the great things that makes the song. And it was certainly in many other songs than this one. But it's funny. As a little aside, I think I remember at this time, Stuart was angry at Mark. And if you uh, if you ever saw the Country Club convention from this period where they had uh, the other guy, Chris Bell, you know they asked about Mark, and, and Stuart says, like, well, you know, we need someone totally committed to us, not someone who's going to – wants to run out and play with Pro Call Harem. And then he makes this, like, mocking sound, and everybody laughed. You could tell that there was a lot of anger there. So I, w- I wonder, even then, you know, if he was pissed off at Mark and was trying to get a little jab in. But – I really disagree with that statement. I wish he wouldn't have said that because that militaristic sound is so perfect and so fits that song so beautifully. So anyway, that's all I got for, for the music. And I'll just talk briefly about the video because that was the thing that got me. And I mentioned this on the first show, you know, when I, I saw Friday night videos and I saw fields of fire, I was looking for kiss videos and fields of fire came on and it was in 83, maybe 84. And I just saw that video, and and it it just uh, it it just really grabbed me. And I've talked to you even on the last show about how I used to always play with these soldiers, and how that was a big part of my life at the time. You know, <laughs> playing with these soldiers—that was part of my leisure time. And in the video, there's a little kid. He's playing with these same kind of soldiers. He's lining them all up. Um, and so that hit me immediately. I was like, "Oh, that's cool. You know, what kind of soldiers are those?" And he's playing with this train that's going around the track. And it turns out that everything the kid is doing in the video is happening in this alternate reality where Big Country, the band, is is experiencing these things. You know, the kid moves the bagpiper that he's got. And the real bagpiper in their reality moves on the train that's going around these tracks. And in the other reality, Big Country is sitting on this train playing Fields of Fire. And then they come to this. Uh, wasteland which is a World War one setting and they see all these soldiers fighting and running across these literal fields of fire with the bombs exploding and then they look uh, from a distance and watch it and which I, I think this is the best video that the band possibly ever did personally I, I think it's a great video um, and they they look across and they see themselves reflected in these soldiers who have died or in some cases in Mark's case he's playing the snare and he looks, you know, plaintively at the other mark who's watching him. And it's it's such a cool moment. It's such a great moment um, in the song. And then finally, at the end of the song, the two worlds sort of unite. And suddenly the bagpiper is, well, he's coming through this tunnel. And suddenly he comes into the home of the boy and the boy looks up and smiles. And there's this giant bright light. And you get the feeling that the band will be following closely behind. But um, I love that video. I, I know this isn't a video show, but I think it goes hand in hand with this song and it's a it's a great video for the for the song and it totally hooked me I mean it totally got its claws into me because it was you know the boys own adventures the soldiers the the feel of the music everything was right up my alley and uh you know so anyway I, I've i gone on too long but this is just I think it's a great song I think it's a, it's a classic big country song obviously um but when you strip it all down and you try to look at it fresh uh i just think there are so many incredible things about this song so many great hooks about this song great choice as a single and it was successful you know to some degree it's still one of the songs that people I, in america i think it's one of the two songs that people know in a big country and fields of fire you know you're always going to get in a big country and then 50 percent of the time someone you'll say fields of fire and they'll say like oh yeah i know that too um whereas most people hear casuals they don't know look away it was never really anything over here and they don't know chance really because that wasn't released um in the uk most people would probably the second one would be look away but here it's in a big country in fields of fire so the still a very iconic song for the band uh, obviously and um yeah i think it's worthy of that it's a great song yeah certainly
1: and it's uh like you said it's probably the most important song for you just by drawing you to the band just like Chance is a very important song for me. Without that, I probably wouldn't sit there talking to you now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, these these songs uh, mean a lot to us personally, but also super important for the band's uh, so early beginnings and getting to where they would go. So, yeah, how to follow that? I think you covered a lot of stuff, but I, I do have things that don't touch on what you said. Incredibly enough. <laughs> so, so yeah, you have to do better next time, I guess. All right but um, we'll see you only have one song I guess to do better well, I,
0: I did it to so. you in close close actions. So you have to do it to me now
1: <laughs> we'll see no, but that's good I think um, I had a ton of uh, Stewart quotes for this song and you touched some of them and I would just sit there and cross them out as you went through them I still have some that you didn't get to so I will get those out of the way And uh, if you do them chronologically, I have one from Record Mirror on the 5th of March, 1983. And that would be not too long after this was released as a single. There was no album out yet, but he was talking to Record Mirror about the single. And he said, Fields of Fire took about 20 minutes to write. I like to keep ideas fresh and spontaneous. I'm not a person who likes to spend four days to write four lines. I don't know who that was a dig at, but uh, anyway, 20 minutes to write. That's uh, interesting. So, um, uh, if you look at later co- comments he would make, then certainly he, he had all these discussions and he did all these things that sort of filled the bag with subject matter. And then it just sort of came out the way it came out. So that's uh, a little interesting. In the same piece in Record Mirror in March 83, he also said, We don't copy anybody and we are not looking back over our shoulders to see if anybody's following. We're making music to move mountains by and melt the snow in your heart. And I just had to say that, because that is such a classic line.
0: Great quote. I'm glad you found that, because I always knew the Music to Move Mountains by line came from him. But at least I thought it did. I wasn't sure. But uh, that's fantastic. It's a great yeah. quote.
1: That that line was evidently born on the 5th of March, 1983. So we, we missed the anniversary, I guess. But a uh, good one. And uh, that line was already there to describe songs like Fields of Fire. And it's very fitting. And it's also a much better line than making music to go to war by.
0: Yeah. And you can hear the pride in that comment too. Yeah, I I love that early
1: pride that he had in the band. You know, he was so fierce about it. Yeah, exactly. Then we have the smash hits one. And we we sort of touched on this, but just to rehash it, he said, the song wasn't intended to tell a coherent story. It's a selection of images, thoughts on a train journey. Uh, I'll get back to that a little bit. It's kind of the quote that we've, Gone with all these years, along with some other ones. Uh, I have a similar one from Rolling Stone. You, I think you read something from this very interview for Close Action uh, on this song. Is that it's about someone who goes off to war and just doesn't come back, which is interesting. That's um, I don't see that the song is exclusively about someone who goes off to war and especially don't come back. That 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 would be almost more the, the previous song. And uh, as I'll get into, I, I see many links between the two songs we have talked about in this episode. Uh, I also have the whole certain chemistry, but you read that out, along with some parts from a melody maker in 1990. I have a further part, which I will uh, read out, where he also (laughs) said in 1990, we were fairly confident that it would do well because we had a groundswell of support from the gigs, although we played to just six people in Manchester. We didn't let it affect our performance, though. Fields of Fire is very representative of Big Country. It's a unique style of guitar playing. People have done things like it, pastiches, parodies almost, which I find really horrible. People doing jiggy songs. Jigs have never been the ethnic part of our music. It's hard to convince people that mine and Bruce's guitar playing isn't a formula, it's just what we are. We started recording the album when Fields of Fire was the top 10 in America that's not true is it <laughs> it's not no maybe it, it could uh, have been like
0: on a different chart maybe like uh you know album chart or whatever but singles chart no
1: we get this point anyway of reference and he said also it was the old bagpipe guitar sound they'd never heard it before and they're sick of hearing it since i did an <laughs> interview in america and they actually put subtitles under my answers exclamation mark so <laughs> a little bit of outrage there but the the 1990 interview is kind of very unique and special and interesting because that was after a gig in dublin that had gone really well but he's taking a more holistic view on his career up to that point and that was also the point where he said he wants to change things around he wants to write new songs to play it's time to replace certain anthems with new anthems and he's uh, having a more a uh, more philosophical look on the future of the band, and also how things have gone in the past. So it's a very raw interview in terms of what he pours into it. But uh, when he looks back at Fields of Fire, he definitely uh, sees this as the start of what was to follow, and th- that they had a huge support for the song. Uh, again, what we see over the course of all these quotes, plus the ones you read, is that depending on who he was talking to, he would give more or less to them. So Melody Maker and Rolling Stone would get more info than the Smash Hits uh, type magazines that uh, that we have <laughs> more quotes from, it seems. But uh, this these quotes that he uh, gave for this song, they're not really that different. I mean, they, they point the same direction, all of them. I'll get into the music first, I think. And um, I'm glad you mentioned The Guns of Navarone. And uh, it's really cool that you found that clip from... Uh, from them on the radio show I've heard about this that they they didn't know about it at the time and had the the hosts sing it back to them so they could hear how it went and that always struck me as hilarious but uh, even if it wasn't on purpose um I do hear it and for the purpose of this discussion when I refer to that particular melody line do 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 I will refer to that as the guns of own part just to, as a descriptive name um, because I think it's funny still. And uh, and there you go. Uh, We have many demos. Let's start with the early demos. Obviously, we know the genesis of the song. It was not around until 1983, so it's a later song. We know the background. They didn't do it before they uh, really got ready to do it with Lillivite. But they did record a demo with uh, John Brandt. That is a late session with John Brandt. Uh, they did early demos with him in uh, March 82 and one again in May 82. That was gearing up for the uh, Chris Thomas sessions. But this is early 83 that they did the session for Fields of Fire. This demo is present on the 30th anniversary 2 CD edition of The Crossing. I also have many tapes with this song. I had one tape called The Crossing Demos, and I have one called The Big Country Rehearsal. They all seem to have the same version of this song that's the earliest version of the song we have in any case and it's slow um that seems to be the case for some demos that they play them slow uh others they play fast like uh, close action so getting the tempo right was one thing that little white had to come in and do for many songs sometimes he would slow things down other times he would speed things up and for this one he had to speed it up a little bit This demo version that we have on the two CD edition of The Crossing is in the original D key. And I guess that is has a lot to do with how he sings it. Uh, it's also very interesting. The main voice in the verses are singing the low part in a low range, uh, while a backing voice, a bit more buried in the mix, is actually singing the high part that we know from the album version. Between a
6: woman and a boy
1: So there was a voice in the background, wailing away, like we would know it later. But the, the low-range vocal is, however, much higher in the mix and clearly seen as the main vocal line at this point. So uh, that was duly changed and thankfully changed. After the first version chorus in this demo, instead of an outro guitar line and various things that they do on the album version, they simply repeat the Guns of Never Own theme again. They did more inventive and interesting things on the album version, including the outro bit, which is the doo 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 doo, and refer to those as the outro guitars. They are more prominent in the outro on the album version. Uh, another thing you notice as you listen to this demo version is the very steady playthrough. I mean, the rhythm of this demo is almost like clockwork. They're locked in that same slow and almost hypnotic tempo. There's not a lot of fills. There's not a lot of extraordinary rhythm things, like the scratch rhythm that would come later or Mark's drum runs. Uh, It's that thing. It almost sounds drum machine-y, although it clearly isn't. But that's a very steady, repetitive pattern. Whatever we may say about the rhythm approach on the album version, at least they lost that, which is, uh, which is good. Yeah, I do agree there. Yeah. The outro has to be mentioned. This demo version, it has a very extended outro. The album version of Fields of Fire is three and a half minutes long. The demo version is five and a half minutes long. <laughs> and I, actually, actually, both of the demo versions are the same length, five and a half minutes long. So we have two more minutes And what do they use those two extra minutes on, you may ask? Well, what we get is a super lengthy outro section, where they do the outro guitars, like the bagpipe art. They do those. They dip back into the Guns of Namarone theme. They play the whole instrumental intro one more time. And then they dip into the first verse again and sing that a second time, which they didn't do on the album version. Just for good measure, I guess, but not the whole verse. They start on the second part of it with uh, A Shining Eye Will Never Cry, and they sing from there on out. A shining
6: eye will never cry, a beating heart will never
1: die. Uh And then they launch into another chorus which is the final one of the song, and after that they do another set of outros and the final chorus and that sounds like the outro we know. So th- it's an insanely long outro on the demo version and granted this is a demo, I I bet they did not intend for that outro to be that long. I'm sure they played it just to see what it's like, to hear what it sounded like, to see which parts they would pick and keep um i think that's why they did it I, I think they were trying things out trying to capture a lot of outer stuff to see what they liked but uh, clearly it was drawn out but now now it's a very cool thing that we have almost like a treasure from those time because the song wasn't yet set totally in stone so it's an interesting version to visit now and then but thank god that that would have been that would have killed the song with all that outro that is an insane but uh, you know I'm glad we have it it's it's okay to have it as an outtake demo thing because yeah what's the option not to have it yeah I'll, I'd rather have it uh, but we have another demo and that is the one on uh, Rarities 4 this is uh, I guess more a studio run through than a demo it's much closer to realization uh, likely they're doing a run through here with Lillivite involved this time uh, I also have other tapes where this is featured: the Crossing Demos and one tape called The Real Crossing Demos and various. But it's the version on Rarities 4. This is clearly a more worked-on version, and there are things in this version a lot closer to the album version than the other one we talked about. The immediate thing is that the tempo is fixed, it is faster, closer to the album version, maybe not 100% there yet. And they have switched the singing voices in the verse. The they're emphasizing now the high voice while the lower voice is backing but it's still there on the album version as we know the low range voice would be totally gone so this is a gradual development as well Uh, the song has a little bit more flourishes But interestingly, it has the exact same extended outro as the previous one. So we have it there too. Same one on the demo version and uh, on the Remittries 4 run-through version. And that's pretty much the versions we have. Then we have the album version, or I guess single version, uh, similar versions there. Uh, Like you say, the key was changed, so I don't need to go into how that affected things, primarily how he sang it, I guess. And also the... uh, Percussive things started showing up. The, the scratch where they sing the 400 Miles thing live is showing up in the intro. that's very, very cool. And like you say, there, there are many drum runs now on the album version that isn't there on the demos. Um, I like especially Mark's drum run when he's uh, around the time when he sings The Shining I Will Never Cry. He does one. What- And the song is full of those little gems, like moments that makes the song burst a little more. Uh, They they have more to offer than just the basic song, basically. So uh, the oomph in the arrangement, really. Uh, One thing I always noticed was the echo on fire as they come out of the first chorus, and one feels off. That's nice, very, very nice. Uh, I sometimes wish that the sound guy could be arsed to press an echo button live. (laughs) That <laughs> that would have been cool, <laughs> but uh, I don't think they did that much. I can't think of a single one. They, they might have, but I can't think of it. That is a great moment, though. Yeah, rousing yeah. indeed. You can move that mountain to that thing. So yeah, I I like the um, the lone line that he sings of between the woman and a boy, between a child and a toy. Basically, the first line of the second verse foreshadowed. And then they go into the Guns of Namoron theme one more time. Just little things like that. They they sort of changed around the mid part a little bit. And I I think that's always been good. All the songs on The Crossing have very interesting instrumental breaks in the middle of the song. And that holds true for this one too. Uh, The outro of the song with those two guitars interweaving. This now comes after the second chorus instead of the extended ongoing instrumental section of the demo versions. And they are wonderful. Uh, don't, I don't need to say that everybody knows them, but uh, you have to mention them. And this is one song where I don't mind the fade out. I'm sort of the the spoken enemies of using fade out as a way to uh, to end a song. It needs to there needs to be something more about it. Like on the storm, the storm is also a fade out, but that's the fade out of an already est- established end section. So that's different. Um, whereas on this one, they kind of end with those guitars interweaving and playing over it and the militaristic drums going out. I think this the 12-inch one is very cool, where they end with those militaristic drums going on for some time. It's a short song though it's the second shortest on the album so uh, that's uh, after the uh, monstrosity of the demo that's definitely a change but uh, I don't think it's necessarily too short but I move into the lyrics and uh, I will uh, add something to what you said here for a lot of this I, I don't really disagree with anything you said I think a lot of this song is about war uh, what I would say is I think there's more to it than that it's not just about war. I think the outward appearance of these lyrics do not fully match the underlying message, uh, which is obviously a lot of it is We've seen these interview snippets for years, uh, which has brainwashed us to what the song is about. Um, so when I sat down, I think it's nice sometimes to look for things to discuss in a song that makes you rethink it a bit. Uh, and that uh, goes also back to the actual title of the song fields of fire where i always thought to begin with that it it referenced fields um, set alight for some reason but not necessarily just the obvious ones it could be a battlefield with bombs going off it could be the napalm you mentioned it could also be a field bathed in sunlight and i would think of a train speeding through an area with huge fields stretching into the horizon and the sun setting bathing the fields in that special sunsety light that almost makes it seem like it's set on fire. And for a long time, I would almost think of the song in those terms. Uh, the music video would probably make me think more of the war scenario, the battlefield scenario. Uh, and I would keep that in mind, but I almost kept the other one in mind too, especially as that made the song a little bit more romantic or idyllic in a way, which I seem to look for a lot in these songs. Uh, but only after really I looked up what a field of fire actually was, did I really start to rethink a lot of this. I think today the song really is about any situation you may find yourself in where you are not safe. If you go back to the field of fire of a weapon or a group of weapons, that is defined as the area around it that can easily and effectively be reached by gunfire. This term originally came from the field of fire in front of forts and similar defensive positions, which was cleared so there was no shelter for an approaching enemy. So it, they would always clear it so that the field of fire was empty. That means they had maximum time to shoot at an approaching enemy. So that's interesting. Then that goes back again to, uh, it's a little bit Old West, isn't it? I'm surprised you didn't mention that as Mr. Old West. But um, Well, I did mention the Old West. I, you always mention the Old West. That's a, that's, I say, hello, and you say, Old West. <laughs> that's, that, that's your credo. But uh, l- looking at it from, from those terms, that uh, when, you're, when you're within field of fire, that means you're within shot of a weapon, or it could be in, within shot of a danger. So um, keeping this interpretation in mind, the song being about any situation where you may find yourself in, where you are not safe which includes war. It definitely includes war. War is a big part of the song. I think it's more than that too. But let's look at uh, these these lyrics, starting with between the father and the son, between the city and the one, the teacher and the test, before the journey and the rest. And like you say, yes, this is a series of bonds that exist. Uh, between the father and the son, between the city and the one. I, I don't disagree too much with what you say there. This is really, um, you find yourself in these situations where i think between a father and a son maybe this is someone who was a son is now a father and you see things from both perspectives maybe you were one and now you're part of a city so different situations you find yourself in but mostly i I would tie into upon the thing you said Where I would add more to it is before the teacher and the test, before the journey and the rest. I think that before here is more you're standing before something. Like you're before the teacher and the test. You have to prove yourself now. You have been with the teacher. You're taught something. You stand before him and you stand before the test. Now you have to prove yourself. You have to show that you learned something. Before the journey and the rest, yeah, you're standing before the journey, and the rest that is before, at the end of it. And hopefully it's uh, putting your legs up and having a good rest and a good job done, and not the final rest that ends on the battlefield. I think you stand before something here, and uh, you're in a situation where you've grown to be in a certain situation. You've grown to be a man. You were a son. You may be a father. You, you are now entering new territories. Um, the shining eye will never cry. The beating heart will never die. Well, this is someone standing proud. That, that's what these, this is to me. This is the eyes shining, the heart beating. Yeah, this is chest poundingly pride. This is the psyching yourself up, whether, it, whether it's a soldier going to war to fight for what he believes is a righteous cause. I mean, this is straight out of that other song you mentioned, Red Rose's song. Um, I would extend it to also be, for example, a husband proud to do honest hard work to feed his family if you go back to the first verse, yeah, you were a son. Now you're a father. You have to provide for your family. You were in your little community. Now you have to go to the city to work and the teacher and the test. Yeah. You have to do your profession Now You've been taught it and the journey and the rest going there, coming back. It's, you can read it in a lot of ways. So I'm more extending your interpretation than really disagreeing with it. I don't disagree with it, but I would add more to it. I think, uh, the hard work to feed your family there's there's idealism in standing proud for whatever reason and this gets interesting with the next two lines for me the house on fire holds no shame Uh, i love your interpretation and didn't quite think of it that way before Uh, how i always thought of this or at least recently upon more reflection uh, something is under attack here and not necessarily physically we're not talking about the physical house of fire i think but there are some challenges here there's a a house with problem and a house can be you it can be your family it can be the unit something has an issue there's a house where there's deal to think there's a house where there are things to deal with there are issues uh, i think of a later song like uh, winter fire burning which is a song on the journey that i keep thinking back to as uh, a song that over the years I think you higher and higher of it. I think that song addresses this to some degree, that there are little fires, and some fires are domestic, some fires are in the community, and some fires are worldwide, like little winter fires that need to be put out. And I think this is an early reference of the same thing, the house of fire that holds no shame, which can be you don't have the money to support your family. That's a house of fire. Don't be ashamed of that. You're going out to work, honest work to feed your family. It could be a threat it it can definitely be a war militaristic threat but don't hold no shame you're going out to uh, to war and that's the last line there i I will be coming home again that's um (laughs) that's a very interesting line all the jobs that required families to be split up if you think a little bit back where the man would look for work they all seemed to be very dangerous and especially the ones that was around Stuart as he was growing up. You had fishing, you had mining, you had coal and steelworks. These were hard jobs, dangerous occupations. And you can definitely add the soldier aspect, people going out to take part in a war. So I will be coming home again. Is it a soldier's promise to his family or is it a working husband's promise to his fearful wife? I think it's highly interesting and it fits every situation. So that's um, that ties directly into... A lot of the topic of the previous song, close action, where they did leave. And it's about really the time apart, families being split up. Here you have more the dilemma of taking that choice and uh, convincing everybody, uh, like, I will be coming home again, that it's okay. that It will be okay. And then we have the chorus, the train journey. Everybody knows that the 400 miles is the train journey. And it's also very hard to ignore that the 400 miles is the distance between London and Edinburgh. That has to be part of this somehow. Uh, 400 miles without the word until you smile, 400 miles on fields of fire. Travelling in silence. I I love the the smile, smiling at your common passenger to strike up a conversation. I uh, always took it as travelling in silence because you burn with yearning for coming home and meeting your family you're burning until you reach home there's an unease just by being apart such a strong desire to return home and only when he sees that smile of his waiting wife or waiting family member at the end of the journey does he breathe a sigh of relief and is able to say something again or at least say something meaningful and in that case the fire he feels is that yearning that he feels as the train flies past all these fields, which then become the fields of fire. It's an internal fire that's externalized onto the surroundings. It illustrates the passion, really, that he feels as the train slowly winds his way home. Because this is a train journey. I I doubt that the train traveled through battlefields and he's seeing the napalm unfold as the train flies through the landscape. I see this more as a different type of fire. But uh, definitely the allegory to battlefields, It's not accidental. It's definitely put there for effect, uh, along with some other lines that uh, lead you to think certain things. So the second verse, between a woman and a boy, between a child and a toy. Interestingly, it does not say between a mother and a boy. It is a woman and a boy, which uh, is interesting. The first verse, we have the father and the boy, and now we have the woman and the boy. Uh, But I always took it to mean mother, or at least a mother figure. And... uh, I think everybody has speculated whether he was thinking about his wife and son here. It seems the obvious thing to do, uh, but you never know. You can't take anything for granted with these uh, lyrics. Someone mentioned on the old mailing list, and it came back to me when I researched this, that uh, this might also be what he sees when he gets home, that the boy is closer to his mother now and closer to his toys than he is to his father because the father's been gone. But uh, with the hope that there's still time there to, uh, you know, get closer and, uh, you know, bond with him again. We have also the um, the tradition of Stuart, that uh, he would give the man one verse, the woman the next, like he did for just a shadow, with shadow of the man you shall be, and then shadow of the woman you should be. He's kind of doing the same thing here with the man in the first and the woman in the second. But the the last part, before the following of the West, before the journey and the rest. So again, here we have the before. I think he's standing before something again. And um, I think perhaps with this as as a starting point, he carried the theme into general separation of families, whether through work or war. And um, I get the feeling he's touching on even emigration here. There was a time when people was emigrating towards the West, and here he stands before the following of the West, before the journey and the rest again. And families would be broken up over this. If a young couple and their kids left, they may have families leaving behind, like parents or the siblings of, of the young parents and a huge extended family, they would leave them behind. And that taps into the same thing. So um, it's I, I see this song really as much about families being split up for whatever reason as close action and maybe this uses war as a more explicit reason but i think there are other reasons and i think maybe this is why these songs are on the album consecutively because they share a bond kind of like where the rose is sown and come back to me not as a continuation of the song or the story in the same way but thematically i see them as very linked Shut! the uh, video i think it's natural to talk about when there's a video for a song the boy playing with toy soldiers and the piper placing them all in the landscape the interesting thing to me has always been what he did with these toy soldiers actually happened to these men in the video and i always got the feeling is this a mastermind pulling the strings controlling what all these minions would be doing Uh, because if this song is more about war um that in itself could be a commentary on the political leaders who control the war. And it's interesting then that this leader is portrayed as a boy who don't really think about what's happening and perhaps is extremely detached from the actual war. And it's also very interesting that the piper ends up with the boy at the end. And I'm not saying that this is suggested at the video, but I kind of think, okay, if this is the mastermind, then the piper's going to, you know, Give him his, you know, he's he's getting what's coming to him. But of course, the video doesn't really allude to that, which would be wrong with a little poor innocent-looking boy, which 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 he really is. He's a cute little boy, but uh, you, you have to think of these things when you when you analyze it, perhaps much more than you ever should. To summarize, I think it's a deeply fascinating song. It's we, we really don't have too many lyrics to analyze, like you said yourself. But so, so given that, I think we did a Damn good job between the two of us dissecting it as much as we possibly could, but uh, yeah, that's that's feels so fire. It's uh, for me, it's an album track. I never saw the video. It never saw, you know, had a, a single of it until years later. I heard it first when I got the album. So for me, it's an album track, but you know, good album track by all means. Probably suffers a little from road wear. They always play it. It's not quite as worn as songs like Look Away, but. Um, there is that element of it, but I do like listening to it on the album. And
0: this finally is a return to actual karate barks that we can count.
1: Oh my god! Yeah, goodness, yes. So, but this- is it also a return to the foul beast of the pits? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Look- Holy oh, <gasps> crap! What is
0: that? <laughs> Oh, man, you guys did a great job. It, lo- it looks like the, the two thugs that I hired to track this Stop piece of it. garbage down have been successful. He's all he back in. Stop it. Did you miss your cage? Yeah. Go back in. You're just in time because we haven't ne- even needed you for the last couple of songs, but we actually need you now. All right. He's back. So Karate Bart, Freak. Fields of fire. Let's get it. Uh Crossing Karate Bark Countdown. Six.
1: Six. Wow. Nice.
0: Yes. Six Karate Barks. They're making up for lost time. Good job, buddy.
1: About time. Yes.
0: Only one song left, and then uh, your fate will be decided one way or the other.
1: Uh, That could be interesting. But uh, first, we forgot to give our own rankings. So, how do you rank "Feels So Fire"?
0: I, I rank this number three, and it's a very high ranking. Uh, at first, I wasn't sure because I had that road wear, but when I think about what the song means to me, what it means to the band, what it um, you know, what it did for me as a fan, and uh, and again, trying to strip back what I. Have accumulated over the years and look at it freshly. I I
1: have to give it a high ranking, so it's number three for me. Well, it's not number three for me because I just spent that, and in fact, it uh, is quite a lot lower than yours. It's number seven for me. Okay, seven. And I actually thought about this because I had chance at number eight, and I could easily flip those. Those are so equal. And chance actually means a little more. So if if we read this now, I probably would have had fields of fire at eight and chance at seven, but I will stick with it because this is uh, they're so damn close. Uh, they might be the two closest songs for me I know. on the album.
0: Yeah, and most most of these songs are very close for me. So yeah,
1: indeed. So uh, yeah, we have the public voting. Let's see how they did here, and they um, they are better than both of us. They rank fields of fire number two. Oh, the wow. second favorite song. It's uh, in no danger of overtaking number one, but it's very um, no. It's, it's actually pretty safe for number three as well. So a comfortable number two for Fields of Fire. It actually got ten number one votings and one lone number ten vote.
0: Good, yeah, and I, you know, that explains why they constantly play it. You know, it's, everybody loves that song. And I think a lot of yep. the, I think a lot of the demo um arrangement too was probably for the fact that they that those riffs were fresh to them. And sometimes when you write something that you really love, you you just overdo it a little bit. <laughs> Let's just play it again. Just play it again.
1: Yeah. Not ever figuring stuff out. So that no no problems whatsoever, but it's uh you you have to laugh when you listen to that. <laughs> yeah. Someone monstrosity the offending, but uh, it's it's cool. Glad we have it. All right. Well, one to go. Uh, we'll get to that soon enough. But uh, hopefully this was good. Do the, do the email thing.
0: All right. Send us an email. BigCountryPodcast at gmail.com. Give us a review on iTunes. I, I just looked on iTunes, and we, had, we have very good reviews. But I noticed that the last review that we got was like three years ago or something. So if you, if you feel so inclined, give us, some, give us some new reviews on iTunes. It's always nice. As long as they're good. And uh, we'll be back for episode 85 and the, and the mighty Poro Man. Yes. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Fare thee well, my fairy face. Bye-bye. All right. Well, we managed through two songs in uh, th- three and a half three hours. Oh,
1: <laughs> boy. Yeah, man.
0: Oh, well, I, yeah. I give up. Who cares? It is what it is. It's the last one we're going to do. So, I mean, you know.
1: You're such a helpful chap. I am, aren't I? Whereas I don't give a damn. <laughs> I'm spent. Me too. We'll talk soon, my man. All right. I'll see you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. We'll